T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, and we have main engine start, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and liftoff. TGB nominal, where the universe is a figment of its own imagination. All systems remain nominal, 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 nominal. The world's first cosmonaut. The first to open the door into the unknown. Hello everybody and welcome to TGP Nominal, your monthly look at all things science fact and science fiction. Tonight is a special episode of TGP Nominal as we join with people across the globe to celebrate Yuri's Night one of the most important occasions in the space community calendar. If you have joined us from the Yuri's Night website, welcome to TGP Nominal, and I hope you enjoy your time in the podosphere. I'd also like to welcome listeners from the Awake Radio Group. There's more information about TGP Nominal at the end of the episode. Joining me on the show tonight is my regular co-host, John Berger. Happy Yuri's Night, John. Oh, happy Yuri's Night to you too. Now, this is your first Yuri's Night, isn't it? It is. And what did you make of it so far? I like it. Uh, it's it's need to have the space community coming together like this even though it's not very big community at least it's growing yeah it's growing every year there's more and more countries taking part and that's um as long as we can get the message out to people that's what it's all about really now every year before we get the show on the road i always like to play in this excerpt of um, why we are celebrating tonight This is the BBC Home Service. Here is the news. All Moscow is waiting to give a hero's welcome to the world's first spaceman, Major Gagarin of the Soviet Air Force. And to begin the bulletin, here's a Moscow recording of his voice speaking to Russian scientists as he went through space. Gagarin said that the flight was going on successfully, normal, visibility was good, and that he himself was feeling good as well. Major Gagarin was sent up in his four-and-a-half-ton spaceship from somewhere in the Soviet Union, soon after seven o'clock this morning, our time. And about 148 minutes later, he was brought down again after his 25,000-mile-an-hour flight around the Earth at heights ranging between 105 and 181 miles. As he looked down on the Earth from the loneliness of space, he streaked across Asia, Africa and South America, constantly checking his instruments and controlling the pitch and roll of the ship by firing small correcting rockets. During his flight, his reactions were checked by radio and television devices. When he got down, Major Gagarin said in a message to Mr Khrushchev, The landing was normal. I feel well. I have no injuries or bruises. When he was told the momentous news in Ottawa, Mr. Macmillan said, It's a very notable achievement. I'm sending a message of congratulation to Mr. Khrushchev. The Prime Minister is now flying home after his three-week tour of the West Indies, the United States and Canada. President Kennedy, too, has sent congratulations to the Soviet Union. In New York, all-night radios broadcast the news in special news flashes and the New York Times carried in its last editions a treble headline. Soviet launches a man into orbit, maintains radio contact with him, first human in space feels well. The director of the National Space Agency, Mr James Webb, called the flight a splendid achievement, 
adding that he hoped the Russians would make available to scientists the information they gained from the experiment. Shortly after the news was given of the flight, Tom German interviewed Sir Bernard Lovell at Jodrell Bank. Here's what Sir Bernard had to say. I think it's one of the greatest achievements in the history of mankind. It's an amazing thought that this has been done by a nation which was largely illiterate a generation ago, and is an example of what has been achieved by tremendous single-mindedness of purpose and sacrifice of the kind of human comforts on a scale unknown to us in the West. I think that uh, this demonstration of the results of investment in education and research is uh, an example which the West can continue to disregard only at its peril. When the first Russian Sputnik was launched in August 1957, was it at all conceivable then that three and a half years later they'd, they'd have a man in space? I certainly thought that uh, man in space still belonged to the realms of science fiction, even after that dramatic day in October 1957. But then, I think it was in August of last year, when the Russians succeeded in recovering the dogs from space, uh, this was an indication that they had achieved the second major breakthrough necessary, that of problem, overcoming the problem of re-entry. And since that time, it's obvious that the successful flight of the first astronaut uh, was only a matter of months, and, and during the last week or so, it's obviously been imminent. Dr. W.F. Hilton of the Hawker Siddeley Astronautics Section, in an interview with our air correspondent, Reginald Turnhill, said today that, in a manner of speaking, the whole solar system was now at Russia's feet. Turnhill next asked him, Well, now, you're a British scientist, but if today you were a Russian scientist, what would you be your next objective in space? Well, circling the moon is one amend circling of the moon, low-altitude observation followed by return to the Earth, and a circular trip to Mars and Venus. These are both possible in the quite near future. Landing on these bodies implies takeoff again. This means you either take the fuel with you or find some sort of fuel station, which is unthinkable, but we might be able to find something on the surface for the return journey. The British Interplanetary Society's Vice President, Mr Kenneth Gatland, had this to say. The world enters an entirely new era which can enrich beyond measure our understanding of the universe. At the International Space Conference now going on in Florence, the Soviet delegate, Professor Blagan-Ravov, said the astronaut had participated to a certain extent in his return to Earth. The professor, beaming with pride, said the recovery was probably carried out by a combination of parachute and glider. And he insisted that Russia hadn't made earlier attempts to put a man into space. Here now is our air correspondent, Reginald Turnhill, to sum up. And after a day of excitement, the scientists are beginning to point out there's still a great deal we don't know about the world's first spaceman. We don't know where he was launched and where he was recovered, not even whether he came down on land or in the sea. But at last, there's one man in the world who knows what it is to experience weightlessness, something it's impossible to simulate properly, something the schools of aviation medicine have been worrying about for years. The Russians must now know whether consistent and reliable work can be expected from future space travellers operating in their strange new world. Obviously, it's a, a newsreel from 1961. The, the image that these news reporters have of the Russians is, is very, <laughs> very bizarre. biased. Yeah, just a little bit. And you could, you can even hear it in some of the experts' um tone that they weren't 
too happy about it, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> the optimism in it as well, you know, it, it, um, we believe that we'll be visiting Mars and Venus within a short time. <laughs> well, I mean, short is relative. <laughs> that is the reason why we are celebrating tonight. Yuri Gagarin, 12th of April, 1961, an amazing feat for uh, for mankind, really, and paved the way for so many heroes in the space community. Hello, I'm Terry Virts, NASA astronaut and commander of the International Space Station, the world's outpost in low Earth orbit. Living and working in this magnificent laboratory with my Russian and European crewmates would not be possible without the pioneering missions of the first human to fly in space, Yuri Gagarin the first American to fly into space, Alan Shepard, as well as all of the astronauts and cosmonauts who flew on board the space shuttle, Soyuz, and international missions that helped to build this complex. Every year on April 12th, the international space community celebrates the anniversary of Yuri Gagarin's first flight into space in 1961, which was followed 20 years later to the date by the first flight of the space shuttle Columbia. Today, I am glad to join you from Earth orbit in your global celebration. No matter where a Yuri's Night event is taking place right now, remember the history that brought us here and the exploration of space is our destiny and our future. Thank you. With me on the line, I have Loretta Whitesides, who is one of the co-founders of Yuri's Night. Now, how did you come up with the concept, Loretta? I was working at NASA Johnson Space Center in Houston, and it was 1990. Six, and it was sort of the end of the Cold War, and the wall had just you know come down recently. And there was the the traveling exhibition of space artifacts from the former Soviet Union. And it was the first time they'd ever left the Soviet Union, and I'd always been really intrigued by the Russian space program. Uh, but of course, at that time, very little was known about it. So we went to the exhibit, and I was stunned to see that April twelfth. 1961 was the day that the first human Yuri Gagarin went into space. It's caught my eye because it's my birthday. And also because when I got to Houston, I'd real, I'd discovered that the first space shuttle launch had also been on my birthday, April 12th, 1981. And I, I just love the the poetic justice of the, the former space rivals shared a common space anniversary. And I thought that was um, something worth celebrating as, as sort of showing the, the future of space, that, you know, we're all in this together and this is something that we share, that we can do um, peacefully and uh, as a planet. I'd never thought of it that way, actually, that the two big powers that be are fused as, as one moment in time. When you started it, how, how, how big was it, the first Yuri's it, Night? It, we started Yuri's Night in 2001. Yeah. That was the 40th anniversary and the uh, 20th anniversary, respectively. And we thought that would be a good spacey year to, to launch something like this. In the first year, we had about 69 events in 29 different countries or something like that on all seven continents. Uh, so we were pretty excited about that. That was a pretty big deal for just some twenty-somethings to uh, come up with, with you know, no budget, you know, in a lab in Caltech, <laughs> <laughs> trying to encourage the world to to participate. It almost sounds like something out of um, uh, Big Bang Theory, doesn't it? It's uh, <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, very influenced by uh, the real, real genius. Or, you know. <laughs> 
did you meet George, your husband, bef- before that, or was it because of Yuri's night? You, well, you met? so I had the idea for this uh, worldwide space party on April 12, 2001, mm-hmm. and I went to a United Nations uh, space conference called Unispace 3 in 1999 and met most of my best space friends in the world there, and including George, and uh, told them about this idea. And at the time, I thought we'd just do it in Moscow and Houston. And they said, no, 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 we want to do it in London and Japan and Sydney. And I said, oh, okay, that's a great idea. And so it just sort of grew from there. And George stepped up. Uh, He was really interested and he became involved. And he's the one who actually came up with the name Yuri's Night and decided to make it this more grassroots distributed electronic music, you know, fueled kind of event. Um, and it, you know, it just sort of grew organically from there. With it being your birthday as well, so was it a party within a party, or did you have <laughs> extra? Uh, uh, most party of the time, after? I forget it's my birthday because you get caught up in everything <laughs> you're doing and organizing, and you sort of go, "Oh yeah, that's right, it is my birthday." <laughs> um, but usually, the people around me, my friends, and, and George, do a good job of uh, remembering to get in a cake or, or a happy birthday song or something like that at the event. So yeah, I guess you could say there is a little bit of a party within a party sometimes it's at denny's afterwards but we get it done before i forget i'm going to wish you happy birthday now so <laughs> a happy birthday because this will be going out over your birthday so yeah happy birthday loretta thank you what are the most memorable moments for you over the years oh there's been some really fun ones um the first year we had george on the replica of the lunar rover in front of the palace in at hollywood and vine in, in los angeles and MTV came and interviewed him, and they ended up featuring him in a segment called Good Guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's this really great photo of him holding the MTV microphone, you know, doing his, inter- his earnest interview about the importance of human spaceflight, which I really love. We also had a, a cosmonaut in, at the Houston event who met his uh, future wife at Yuri's Night wow. and ended up marrying her while he was in space. Uh, Luck, Texas has very liberal uh, marriage laws, so only one person has to be physically present for the wedding to to go forward. So he was able to, you know, Skype into his own wedding from space with a cardboard cutout stand-in of him at the at the ceremony. <laughs> uh, so I thought that was that's a that's a fun accomplishment, I guess. It you know, is. There's been a lot of marriages actually that come out of Yuri's night. I mean, it's it's really good to know that such an event is actually brought people together. Yeah, which I love, and that which is totally the point. You know, it's all about connecting pe- two people together, or connecting you know two cultures together, or connecting you know our whole species together. That's what that's what it's about. We like to say it's a holiday that'll be celebrated ten thousand years in the future. Uh, and you can imagine when we're scattered among, you know, 12 different star, star sectors that we all look back and remember the home planet. That would be something else, wouldn't it? It yeah. really would. The NASA Goddard party in 2009, we approached Ace of Cakes about doing a, a special space cake for us, which was fantastic. So they they loved the idea because Duff was very interested in space. And so he said, OK, absolutely, we're doing it. So they made a Hubble cake and a Jupiter cake and they hung them from the ceiling because uh, Goddard is known for the work on the Hubble Space Telescope. Mm-hmm. They weren't actually edible because they were doing it on a short timeline and the technically hanging a cake from the ceiling is pretty difficult. So actually it was like a foam core model covered in fondant, which is their sort of signature decorator yeah. touch. But, it, um, but they but they were nice enough to provide um, Ace of Cakes sheet cakes for all the attendees to get to eat while we looked up at the uh, Jupiter and Hubble uh, models they'd made for us. It was an amazing sight to, to see. Um, it's the first time I actually seen it on on the photos that uh, you've put up on on facebook yeah it did look totally amazing 
And my first thought was, how are you supposed to cut that? <laughs> <laughs> well, the ace of cakes, cakes in general are very difficult to cut. So that's always, anyone's got that challenge. That was a fun event. Uh, that was the one where I did the um, Slave Leia costume. It was before I knew I was going to be have, starting to have children the following year. And I thought, this is maybe the last time I can pull off a Slave Leia costume. Um, um, so those pictures are coming soon. And then also um, one of my other favorite events was the one that Richard Garriott spoke at, at uh, NASA Ames out in California in 2010. Um, they did a massive event with like 7,000 people. They had a, a air show. They had Richard Garriott speaking. They had um, Pharrell was there performing wow. uh, as part of NERD. And uh, Common performed and he did this custom rap for, for NASA and Yuri's Night that was phenomenal. I'm still trying to get a video of it or the lyrics because it was really good. And um, and the center director for NASA Ames, uh, General Pete Warden, he's fantastic. You know, he was obviously an Air Force general during the height of his career. And um, or, sorry, I should say during the height of the Cold War during his career. And it was really great because and for one year he dressed up as a Soviet general, which was very very cheeky. <laughs> uh, and then uh, the first year he came in full wizardry regalia, just uh, velvet, floor-length velvet robes and a big velvet pointy hat and a big staff. And he came out at like one in the morning and welcomed everyone to the event. He said, I'm the director of NASA Ames. Welcome. And it was just fantastic showmanship and just not something you'd ever expect to see from a NASA official. Uh, so that's, that's also very much a highlight for that's me. that's it i mean these guys that are in that kind of field you you normally regard them as quite serious individuals and when uh when you talk about things like that it's amazing to hear that they just go along with the whole flow of the uh, evening because i know that nasa ames normally put on a very good show anyway um i've spoken to people that have been to events there in the past and they said they've had such a blast whilst they were there and um, that's what I'm trying to, to see whether we can do something similar in the UK because we, we don't do parties as well as they do in the States, generally. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to change that. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely a bit of, maybe it's a bit of cultural things, you know, a little bit of like letting loose and letting the stiff upper lip, you know, relax a little bit and have some fun. Letting, letting it be okay to be yourself and have fun. Well, yeah, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I, I think I've embraced American culture a lot. You see, I've spent a lot of time in the States, so I've probably taken a lot of it on board myself. And um, I've, I've been told in the past, are you sure you're British? Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's very sweet. <laughs> the 50th anniversary of Yuri's flight must have been... Um, something really momentous for you because um, it was the biggest Yuri's night ever um, so that must have been just something totally unreal for you absolutely it was like over like 600 events I think it was just really inspiring to see people from all over the world like coming out to celebrate space and and I really love just the, I love empowering local people to create their own events, you know, like become leaders in their own communities and learn, you know, you get these young people and they're learning event planning, they're learning team management, they're learning so, uh, media relations, um, budgeting, just all kinds of things that can help prepare them for, um, you know, being leaders in the space community. 
and, and, and building community and connections and relationships at the same time. I just think it's, it's amazing. When you started to see some of the photographs and videos that were coming through, what was that like, just knowing that the whole world was on board? Yeah, sometimes it's really, I have to almost pinch myself and be like, you did this, you know, because it's very easy to stand back and be like, no, this is just happening. Be like, no, it wouldn't be happening if, if you hadn't spoken up and said this should be. And so that's um, very moving to know that, you know, you've made that much, touch that many lives. Um, and, and just to see what people create is, uh, is stunning. I mean, the, the, the Spain has had the Cannes hat party and you see all these young people, you know, dancing around the nightclub and, you know, Toronto's rented out the science museum and convinced them to let them throw a Yuri's <laughs> night party. And the South Pole station is, uh, you know, doing a toast to Yuri around the South Pole marker. I mean, it's just, uh, it's stunning and just to see all the things people come up with and, and the, uh, you know, all the, all the students from Beijing University, you know, hanging out with Boeing engineers from the States, like, like they're rock stars. And um, it's, it's just great. It's great to see that space really can bring the world together. Yeah, and I think that was the whole thing about the, the International Space Station is that it's managed to, to do that over this, you know, the amount of years that they've been um, running it, that all these nations have been able to work in harmony together. And with Yuri's Night, it, it radiates that out even further. I'm just hoping that it's events like this that can keep the planet together. <laughs> yeah, I just wrote a blog post uh, recently about um, uh, Ron Guerin's new book, The Orbital Perspective, that talks about uh, the international cooperation that went into the International Space Station and and how we can use that uh, as an inspiration for cooperating uh, on projects for Earth and, and solving Earth's problems. And one of the things that struck me about it was that not to take it for granted, you know, that, that the International Space Station and was is a miracle mm. and people and that it was individuals it wasn't inevitable it was individuals who said this will be and they put in the sweat equity and the time in a foreign country and learning a foreign language and being away from their families and building trust and building relationships with people from a different culture that made it possible and that uncomfortableness made this miracle possible and i just wanted to remind everybody that if we want that to continue in the future, it's our job to to make it so, to pick up that mantle and keep keep those relationships, doors open, keep building relationships with Japan and, and China and Russia and, and you know, Europe and, and, and beyond in the Middle East and Africa and, and say, you know, we need to keep building trust. We need to keep building lines of communication. We need to keep building a common vision for the future. And we need to make sure this keeps happening because it's important. And it's not just going to keep happening because somebody started it. It's going to keep happening because we say so and because we're doing the work to make it happen. Now, going back to some of the events that you've been involved in, you are renowned for wearing costumes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like you it's mentioned, the, the, uh, the Princess Leia one. And was it, was it last year that you dressed in the Virgin Galactic? Uh... Yeah, Galactic Girl was amazing. Um, my friend Janet T. Planet, she's a, a, a fashion designer, and she uh, agreed to partner with me on that, and she made the bodice and the gloves and the helmet, and uh, it's just a lot of fun to get to pull off being a nose art for a spaceship. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, and who doesn't want their own bubble helmet? I mean, come on, that is like the coolest thing ever. And I, I, I must admit, you looked amazing in that costume. You really did. Thanks. Yeah, when I'm at the gym, sometimes people are like, wow, are you like training for a, a triathlon or something? I'm like, no, um, for a, a party. Really. <laughs> it seems rather strange to be working out for a party. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. It keeps me healthy. <laughs> Have you got something planned for this year? I'm not going to ask you what it is if you if you have, but have, have you got anything oh, yeah, planned? I, I've actually not been very secretive about it this year. The theme for the LA event is A New Hope in homage to Star Wars, which, mm-hmm. of course, I'm a devotee of Star Wars. Well, the original Star Wars, I should be specific. <laughs> Um, the, the the real the real Star Wars. And uh, in honor of the new movies coming out, um, that's our theme. And I'm going to be doing Throne Room Malaya this year, which is... I've always really loved her white, the white dress and that beautiful necklace that she wears in Throne Room and with her hair up instead of the buns. Wow. Uh, it's just stunning. And so I have a, another uh, uh, Chantel Bayers, another, uh, she's a, actually does dresses for uh, like red carpet events. Mm-hmm. And so she's doing the Throne Room dress and she's managed uh, amazingly, like, again, miraculously almost. She's fantastic to get a jewelry designer to uh, create a Princess Leia necklace. It's just stunning. I'm I'm like, they're going to let me wear this? This is so cool. <laughs> I think they even want to start a, a line of space jewelry, which I think is even better. Like, rather than a one-off, they, I think they want to make it, you know, available to more people. Fantastic. I'm all about making space available to more people. So that should be really fun. What would be really cool if they were space-flown as well? I'll have to work on that. I think I've got connections. <laughs> um, yeah, we're going to be doing a reenactment of Throne Room. Um, I've twisted my husband's arm into um, participating in that. And uh, his, his best friend, Kevin Hand, who actually introduced us at the UN conference in 1999, he gets to be Han Solo because that just fits his personality better. <laughs> and uh, my husband gets to be uh, Luke Skywalker because, of course, he's the nice guy. Um, of course, of course. And, uh, and gonna, they get to come up and get their uh, their medals. So I'm I'm really excited about that. That should be a lot of fun. I, I actually processed into my wedding to the song from Throne Room. So that is be. so cool. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I recommend it to everyone. It's a very good processional. Um, so who's drawn the um, short straw and is having to be the walking carpet? <laughs> Uh, we haven't found anyone with a Wookiee costume yet, but Kevin uh, Han Solo happens to own a life-size Wookiee cardboard cutout. Uh, <laughs> so uh, worst comes to worst, we'll just have bring the cardboard cutout with us and, and turn him around on the stage for the photo op. So that should be fun. <laughs> That's, that sounds like it's going to be so cool. So n- nowadays you specialize more in organizing individual events rather than the whole thing. One of the things I was taught, always taught is that the real mark of this of a successful project is if you can if it can survive <laughs> beyond you, uh, if you can find succession for your for the leadership. And so when I was pregnant with my son, I knew I sort of need to take a sabbatical. Mm-hmm. Um, and I it was the 50th anniversary was coming up that year, and I thought, well, I'm sure you know this is good timing because who wouldn't want to be the executive director of Yuri's Night for the 50th anniversary of human spaceflight? So that was when Ryan stepped up. And I took more of a emeritus role after the kids were a little bit older. Uh, my daughter was born two years later. Then I started getting back involved with organizing the, the local event here in L.A., mostly because I want to have a cool event to get to go to myself. <laughs> <laughs> and to be honest with you, the, the L.A. party just seems to be the place to be. 
Thank you. We're really excited this year to have uh, Dr. Mae Jameson, NASA, former NASA astronaut. She's the first woman of color in space Yeah. in 1992. And she actually flew on Endeavour, which is the, the space shuttle that we, we are lucky enough to have here uh, retired in Los Angeles. That's right. And so she'll be our VIP speaker and she'll be talking about her flight and um, you know what it is to be on the, the forefront of things and uh, be able to be a spokesperson and a, an influencer for space and also her work with 100-Year Starship and really what they're doing now, um, thanks to the foresight of, of Pete Warden again and, and DARPA, to look at what humanity needs to do to be ready to go to the nearest star. It's going to take some doing, isn't it? really is but yeah that's why we got to get started now (laughs) not just the rockets but you know the culture the clothes the the psychology the the life life support systems you know regenerative life support systems and and everything else so so it's it's an interesting problem and and the things you need to learn to solve that problem will obviously help a lot of problems we have on ours too and so it's it's sort of a neat a neat way to look at the I like to refer to them as challenges rather than problems because I've, I've, I've always worked in a, an environment where if you mention the word problem, it's a, it's a complete no-no. It's <laughs> Problems don't exist. They're all challenges. Slight challenge. <laughs> yeah, and actually I've been reading a lot of Richard Bach lately. I just love – he's a fantastic pilot and author, and uh, he's he loves to talk about – you know, wouldn't life be really you know boring if we didn't have any challenges or risks or – problems or you know disappointments you know wouldn't that be boring yeah it would everything this, if everything went your way thanks for that's what all every movie is based on that you always have a, a problem and a resolution a challenge to the hero yeah very much so where do you see yuri's night heading that's a great question one of the things i've been really inspired about uh this year is just seeing yuri's night take hold more in traditional settings mm-hmm yeah, the National um, Planetarium in Kuala Lumpur is hosting an event this year. The, the, the Space Foundation, which is one of the more um, sort of conservative space groups, organizations in the United States, is hosting their own Yuri's Night before their annual space event next week. And um, Buzz Aldrin's coming. And, and, they, and just to see, like, it's not just uh, the young people and uh, the fringes of the community that, are, that have embraced this now, sort of, People like throughout the community are starting to come around and and say, yeah, this is this is good. We should be doing this. We should be supporting this. And so I'm starting to see more. Like I think the National Park Service is hosting a, in the United States is hosting. Some, so just seeing like government or institutions and military institutions and sort of the more staid and, and conservative groups saying, yeah, let's do this. You know, shows that it's really starting to take hold. We, we've always aspired to be like the St. Patrick's Day for space, where you know, <laughs> nobody has to tell you to do it. Everyone just spontaneously is like, St. Patrick's Day, yeah, let's drink green beer, woo yeah, And we- just like takes their own initiative and, you know, goes out and buys, you know, green necklaces or whatever <laughs> they want and, and uh, you know, creates their own events. Yeah, we, we call the, the people that are not Irish that take part in, in, uh, in St. Patrick's Day, we call them plastic paddies. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Blast off into the potosphere with TGP Nominal. What do you think Jury's Night can do to change people's 
perception of the space community and what the not necessarily just NASA but everybody involved are trying to do there are a lot of um, naysayers should I say out there do you think that Yuri's Night can change people's opinion? Yeah I think one of the things we're trying to do is to be a positive force for promoting space and and really addressing people's you know honest concerns you know is this costing too much money you know is this should we wait until we've solved all the Earth's problems? You know, you know, did did anyone really land on the moon? You know, people have, you know, they they don't know. They just uh, they. So you know, we part of our mission. You know, we're an educational nonprofit is to get out, you know, answers to those questions. You know, saying that, you know, this the money that we're spending on space is an investment. You know, the same way we invest in children, even though there's no clear return on investment. <laughs> It's something that, you know, is bigger than ourselves, something we know is worthwhile, something we know we need to do to continue on the species. And that's how I see our investments in space. And then, the you know, whether solving our problems on Earth, you know, I think that, you know, when you get people, young people inspired to study calculus and partial differential equations and physics, uh, just because they want, they're so inspired about building spaceships that they're willing to, to sit through all that so they can do it, um, you know, that makes our society stronger and makes more people who you know can figure out how to make our bridges stronger and our water cleaner and and uh our chemicals safer and and all those things so it's it's a great way to motivate people to um learn and to be stewards of of our home planet and to look at the big picture and how to take care of uh our our whole spaceship that's an amazing way to to see things you know we have a um a conference here um in the uk uh for young people uh, it's called the Big Bang Fair, and all the different agencies, you've got uh, obviously the UK Space Agency and the different um, aerospace companies and all different uh, leaders in in the business, they're putting on different displays and sh- um, workshops and things, and, and basically they are looking out to see if some of these young minds have got what it takes to be the next generation of scientists, engineers, and even astronauts at the end of the day yeah um it's it's amazing to see um young people working on these projects and challenges and for example tim peak our um astronaut that's going up later in the year he's got a project that he's set up using the the raspberry pi he's taking one on board the iss with him and he's he's encouraging kids to send up their code (laughs) when he's up there that's fantastic so yeah it's it's part of his uh, principia mission uh, whilst he's up there well that's great um i'm really looking forward i'd I'd love to get to speak to him but i know he's really busy right now preparing himself um maybe when he when he comes back to earth i'll see if i can um, arrange an interview with him but that would be uh, amazing he's actually arranging for interviews up on the ISS, but it's it's mainly for schools. So um, his whole project, while he's up to his whole mission, is really aimed at children. Um, That's it's it is, isn't it? It's just amazing that he's he's focusing on uh, getting kids inside excited in in the STEM subjects, really. Which, yeah. Which I know um, there's a quite a few NASA uh, astronauts who are doing the same thing, and it seems to be working there's more and more kids getting involved in um, the sciences now than ever before and uh, not strangely but a lot of them seem to be girls uh, girls seem to be excelling now 
more than boys in the sciences um, and that's no bad thing because you know uh, to empower girls and women is is a, uh, an awesome thing to be doing absolutely yeah I'm, I think uh, the leaps that government astronauts have been taking lately in outreach and and Twitter and everything has been fantastic and really, you know, starting to connect with more and more kids. And I think it's great. That's one, one of the things that Yuri's Night was really focused on, um, you know, when we started this 15 years ago was making space more accessible to people, um, make, putting it in terms they can understand. Almost, It's almost like a Carl Sagan-esque mission, you know, making it, uh, making it very human, making it very accessible, something they can connect with, something they can understand, something they can appreciate, something that we put. That's why we like to bring in the art and the music. Yeah, because definitely. It's a way to make uh, the science and the engineering more more accessible to people and give them another way to uh, to explore and, and appreciate space. Is that the reason why the um, STEM subjects have now changed to the STEAM <laughs> subjects? Because <laughs> uh, they've added art. Yeah, they're adding in the art. It's interesting because I, you know, as a scientist, uh, you know, my back training is in astrobiology. You know, you kind of think, well, isn't that just going to dilute it? Wasn't the point to put, you know, attention on science and math and engineering? And I actually spoke to a woman from the LA County Museum of Art, LACMA, and, and she was doing a presentation on STEAM and adding in that A for art. And then it really clicked for me. And then I really got it. And she said, you know, Loretta, do you want more scientists and engineers or do you want more Leonardo da Vinci's? And I thought, wow. I'd never you, thought of you know, that What before. if we didn't just stop at training them to be, you know, fluent and, and competent in math and science and engineering, but we actually also taught them design and artistic and that they could connect their ideas with the public and they could make it beautiful and they could make it relevant and they could, you know, be a genius, you know, of course, you know, absolutely. That sounds great. So, so that was when I started to realize, like, yes, I want to train the next generation of Leonardo da Vinci. Was a very inspiring man. I mean, some of the ideas that were laughed at at the time have, yeah. re- well, since then been proven that they would work. <laughs> yeah, that's another a favorite quote, which I've, I've I've seen attributed to Arthur C. Clarke, and I, so I like to say that is that we vastly overestimate what's possible in the short term. And we vastly underestimate what's possible in the long term. That's awesome. My um, other half, who, as I mentioned to you, was is more art-based than science-based. Uh, when I, well, I kind of went into a little bit of a rant about why have they put art into this. <laughs> and uh, she said, <laughs> well, look at what you're trying to do yourself. I'm, I'm learning um, computer-aided design for doing stuff with 3D printers and and things like that and she said you have to learn to perspective draw before you can go to that stage mm-hmm. that is design design is art mm-hmm. yeah. she, she said i'll rest my case <laughs> <laughs> you're a lucky guy sounds like she's, she's a smart one yeah she's got a head screwed on that's for sure <laughs> she puts me in my place put it that way <laughs> The next thing I wanted to ask you was um, more about away from from Yuri's Night. What other projects and things are you involved with? I've also been very active with at Virgin Galactic. Really, I'm really passionate about maximizing the impact that uh, seeing space has on our future astronauts and has on the world. So I've been working. Uh, it's, it's called the overview effect. I'm sure you. I'm, I'm sure you've encountered it on the garbage pod before. But yeah, um, yeah. just the impact of 
uh, on the way you, your perspective and the way you think about yourself and your place in the universe and, and your job on earth after seeing earth from space and getting that, that really big picture view and that long-term view too. And so feeling connected with everyone and everything. And so I'm really looking at, you know, how can we um, prepare the astronauts to, who are interested at least to have that experience and then what they can do with it when they get back to, you know, cause we're going to be having, you know, the most diverse pool of space explorers ever. We're going to be doubling the number of people who've been into space, you know, from like 547, you know, to you know over a thousand in the next few years. And so, you know, we're really committed to creating like a, a international community of ambassadors and emissaries for space and for peace and for sustainability and for, for whatever their mission is. Um, so I've been doing a lot of thinking about that I'm, I'm working on a book on on how to do that um and also working to train sort of also trying to mentor a lot of the young engineers at galactic um on how to be the change that we want to see in the world here in the in the space industry like having um not just our spaceships be the state of the art but that the way we work and our culture and the way we treat each other and the way we talk and the way we organize um our company to have that be cutting edge too and really breaking new ground for um, how work is done and how life is lived and being being at the forefront of that. I like to, I like to say that we don't want to build just the spaceships of the of the sci-fi future. We want to build the the cultures too. Um, and so been working a lot on that and, and putting that in the book and thinking about how to articulate that and share that with the world. So that's really my, my mission. Because you, your side of it, you're, you're working on behalf of Unite, aren't you? So I'm, I'm a volunteer. I'm a, I have a ticket to fly with Virgin Galactic. George and I bought our tickets in 2005, years before he started working for Virgin Galactic. And uh, as a customer, I volunteer with Galactic Unite, which is our nonprofit arm and work on education and outreach and, and uh these sorts of questions about how we can um, best use this group of people this well-resourced, passionate, well-networked, diverse community all around the planet to make a difference. And one of the other things you've been quite renowned for, for doing are your, um, your, your zero-G flights, aren't you? <laughs> Those are a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> I started flying uh, with zero-G on when, our very first flight when we started out in 2004, uh, with George, actually, in those days, before he got too busy, and uh, been a flight attendant for them, and then went on to become a flight director for them, and have over seventy flights um, on the on the seven twenty seven, racking up waitlist hours uh, at thirty seconds at a time, adding up to about I have about four hours of waitlist time now. That's a and, lot of flights. Uh, it is, it is, and it's just so fun to be able to you know stand on the ceiling of the airplane or or float you know in lotus position just in the middle of the airplane or. Or Superman from one side to the other, <laughs> uh, you know, which I have to do for official business reasons. You know, oh, if I have course. to attend to something in the front of the cabin urgently, you know, I'm, the quickest way to get there is obviously going to be to put a shelf on the back seats and Superman all the way to the front of the airplane. <laughs> Definitely a throw. So, what does being a flight attendant on a zero G flight actually involve? <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't serve any drinks until the, the zero G parabolas are, are completed. Uh, and then, uh, then we pass out uh, some bottles of water and, uh, and, and snacks and things for people as they're coming back to their seats. Oh, right. Um, but, uh, you know, I uh, just had this image of a trolley floating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No trolleys. The trolley does not do well in zero gravity. So we don't have one on board, but we do, I do do the safety briefings. So I'm very well versed at putting my, you know, two fingers together and pointing out, you know, the oh, exits, exits in the back, here. the yeah. front and the <laughs> side overwing exits. 
on the airplane. So putting on my safety vest and do, we call it doing the safety dance. So it's a lot of fun. We have, fun. <laughs> we have a lot of fun with it. We're very Southwest as, as we would say in the U S sort of a, a playful, playful approach to, to, because that's the way you get people's attention in any way. And you've had some, um, quite interesting people, um, uh, taking part in these uh, zero-G uh, flights as well, haven't you? Absolutely. I mean, I've flown with uh, Buzz Aldrin um, and other you know astronauts, flown with Princess Beatrix, lots of Virgin Galactic customers and um, lots of uh, other high rollers and business types. And I almost flew with Tony Hawk one time as well as the famous skateboarder. That, yeah. was, that was fun for me as a, as, as a kid who was really into into watching skateboarder skate betty i guess i was it's uh it's a bit confusing here in the uk because we also have a stand-up comedian here called tony hawks which <laughs> confuses matters a little bit until you realize that you booked the wrong person <laughs> <laughs> um but didn't stephen hawking do one of them yes yes i should say that yeah um and i flew with richard branson as well gosh i should mention that um <laughs> He's a lot of fun. Any, anywhere we go, he's fun. Yeah, uh, yeah the, the, definitely the most media attention we've ever gotten as a company is when we flew Stephen Hawking. And I'm very, very proud of that flight. It was an extraordinary achievement um, and a testament to the force of nature that is Dr. Peter Diamandis, who's the, one of the founders of, of Zero-G and International Space University and XPRIZE, you know, and Space Adventures and Planetary Resources and Singularity University. Wow. So, you know, he's just an amazing guy, and I, I'm very privileged to have him as a mentor and a, and a friend. And um, he said, you know, we're going to do this. And you know, everyone and their brother said, no, it's too dangerous. You know, we we couldn't possibly. This is this isn't a good idea. You know, what if something happens to Stephen <laughs> Hawking? You know, this is terrible. And uh, he said, no, we we will do it. And um, and he did. He pulled it off. And the, there, our criteria for mission success on that flight was to, to fly one parabola with Stephen Hawking um, and let him, you know, float free from his wheelchair and, and experience um, being free, free from the, yeah. the, the bonds of, that, you know, f- f- shackles that, you know, held him down for so long. And um, it was really quite moving, you know, to hear um, that. You know, he was so enthusiastic after the first problem and giving his nurses a complete like, I'm fine. Let's go. Let's keep going, you know, signal. And like, I, I want to do more. And um, on that flight, we ended up doing um, eight zero G parabolas with Dr. Hawking. And he was just extraordinary. We flew. We floated the Apple, the Newton Apple next to him for the Newton chair that he holds. <laughs> uh, and. You know, the pictures are, are stunning because, it's, you know, it's the biggest smile you've ever seen on Stephen Hawking's face, you know, and it's just um, really a, a testament to the human spirit and um, and what's possible. See, a, a, a lot of people just see him as the professor and everything that he's achieved, the momentous things that he's achieved. But the man has a really amazing sense of humor as well. <laughs> I mean, he's a bit of a practical joker in that respect he's uh he's yeah he's really up for everything he really Great. is yeah uh, it's it's a, it's a i'm really fortunate to have elders and, and and leaders and and people like that to on our planet and help us teach and guide us and i i, I uh i'm really grateful that we have stephen hawking he's quite a quite a force certainly is now going back to richard branson now i can only imagine what he's like but he comes across as quite a force himself and he's another one renowned for practical jokes and things as well um from from 
what I've read uh, about him and quite a fun guy to be around. Absolutely. No, uh, Richard Branson is an absolute delight to be around. And it's really, not only is he charming, but it's really inspiring to watch him with his staff because he has an uncanny ability to just be so gracious and fun and self-effacing and appreciative and playful with them. You know, he gets all of his results in the world um, with love. Yeah. And it's really just heartwarming to see that, you know, good wi- to see good winning. <laughs> to see like, you know, he doesn't have to use force or fear or anything else or money to motivate people. He uses um, just love and inspiration and just the, the opportunity to be a part of something really extraordinary. And I, I think that's fantastic and i'm very just thrilled to get to be in his orbit as well yeah he's, he's always come across that way even from his beginnings when he when he started out with with virgin records that you know you look up look out for your people your people will look out for you he's always seems to have been that way and i think he he gets that from his well mainly from his mum i think because she's She's an amazing woman herself. Recently, just reading uh, about her foundation and, and, and things like that, um, I can see where he gets it from. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and Eve is actually who Galactic Girls modeled on. Yes, so. yes, I've realised that. So um, has um, Richard actually said anything about <laughs> whether his mum's seen you in the costume? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, I never thought to ask that. That's funny. <laughs> um, no, I don't know. Okay. So, Loretta, one thing we, we like to do on TGP Nominal is all our special guests that we have on the show, we like to make them honorary um, crew members by presenting them with our mission patch. So, without further ado, here is your patch. Thank you. Oh, it's fantastic. I love it. I'm quite honoured. And what we will do, if you don't mind, if we could get a photograph of you with the patch, and then we will put you in our honorary crew members page on our website. Absolutely. The universe is a figment of its own imagination. (laughs) Once again, thanks very much for coming on the show. We're really honoured to have you on here because if it wasn't for you, we wouldn't be making this show. Um, So, yeah, thanks again. My pleasure. Thanks for everything you're doing as well. So it's pretty amazing to have Loretta Whitesides on on board. I mean, she came up with the idea of the whole event, everything to do with Yuri's night, uh, her and her her husband, George, of course. And you've probably realized that um, her husband, George, has got some involvement with Virgin Galactic as as well as Loretta has. Um, George is actually the CEO at Virgin Galactic. So is that all? <laughs> yeah, he's he's quite high up there. <laughs> Being funny there? I didn't even realize. <laughs> oh dear. Hi. Chris Hadfield here. Yuri Gagarin just a little over 50 years ago truly as so many people have said led the way. When he shouted "Payakhali" and "Let's get going," he embodied the entire spirit of human exploration. And his combination of uh, technical competence, of personal bravery, but truly, maybe more importantly that, his sense and understanding of the art and the import that went along with it really set the standard for everyone who has followed in his footsteps. Uh, I wish everybody uh, the greatest of success and the greatest of celebration in Yuri's Night and beyond. 
Поехали. I think it's time we had a little music. We've been given permission to play into the show a very special track. Uh, the track was the first single off of Public Service Broadcasting's latest album, The Race for Space, and it's called Gagarin, and I can't think of a more perfect track to play. This is Moscow. This is Moscow Corner. On the 12th of April, the Soviet Union orbited a spaceship around the Earth with a man on board. The astronaut is a Soviet citizen, Major Gagarin Yuri Alexeyevich.
we were hoping to bring you an interview with Public Service Broadcasting for tonight's show, weren't we, John? Uh, and sometimes schedules just don't cut it. Yeah, we've had a few logistical issues, so shall we say. We nearly had it, but we didn't quite make it. But we are still in talks with Giles Floodgate, their um, tour manager, and... Uh, yeah, it's looking promising for later on in the month for us to maybe get an interview with them and uh, we'll bring it to you in a later episode. Crichton, what are you doing, man? Oh, sir, I'm listening to The Garbage Pod. It's a podcast I found in the podosphere. So, joining John and I on the line from, from Florida is Ryan Cobrick, or should I say um, Dr. Ryan Cobrick, really. What, what is your position at, uh, at Yuri's Night? I'm the chairman of the board and president of Yuri's Night. Now, you've, you've been involved for quite a few years now, haven't you? Yeah, I first started volunteering with Yuri's Night in 2003 at the Yuri's Night Los Angeles event. Um, I met George Whitesides and Loretta Hidalgo at the time. I was on my International Space University internship at the XPRIZE Foundation. And when I met them, they're like, hey, do you want to help us throw a space party? And I'm like, yeah, of course I want to help you throw a space party. <laughs> and so that's how it started. So 2003, I had volunteered with a few other International Space University students that were on their internships in the LA area. And we helped out with the family day at JPL. Um, I believe it was at the racetrack. And then we had our party at LAX at the airport at Encounter, which is this giant alien looking building that's uh, kind of right next to the airport property or within the airport property. And ever since then, I've been hosting my own local events. And in 2010, Loretta asked me if I was interested in becoming the first executive director. And um, first I was like, are you sure? It didn't take much uh, leg pulling from Loretta. I was like, okay, <laughs> let's do this. And um, been involved helping run the executive since then. I've always been passionate about human space flight. And for me, I kind of, I took the academic path. I was really motivated to, with the goal of getting a PhD in aerospace engineering and having that drive to kind of achieve that kind of academic level, I just kept getting involved in more and more spacey outreach. And the common thread throughout the whole thing was always Yuri's Night. In Colorado, I was heavily involved with CU SEDS, the Students for the Exploration Development of Space. Um, I was with the group that helped reboot that chapter. And that's, you know, always been important to me is to have that escape from you know, your normal day job is to do something that gives back to the community. And it just happens to be more spacey things because I love space. Well, why not? Why not? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you, one of the um, places that you studied, you, you share with John, actually, because um, you studied for a while at Penn State, didn't you? Yeah, that's right. I was at Penn State for two years doing my master's in aerospace engineering. That was right after the master's at the International Space University. Two very fun years there, and um, I really learned a lot. Did most of my coursework there in aerospace and was able to put together a thesis with my advisor, Dr. Spencer, on optimizing trajectories for suborbital human spaceflight. And so kind of leveraged my XPRIZE experience and um, combined it with, you know, how do we make a suborbital flight uh, as comfortable as possible for a passenger. So to, how do we, what's the lowest amount of G's that we can expose someone to 
to get them to 100 kilometers in a given vehicle or what's the furthest we can send them up with a given vehicle. And so it kind of gave me that the engineering perspective of what's possible with the vehicles that were being designed. And that also kept me involved with the XPRIZE Foundation for a few more, you can call them internships or research uh, stints, but I was able to go back to LA and Mojave for the winning of the XPRIZE, the Ansari XPRIZE, and so that was extremely exciting. And you know, one of the biggest things from the International Space University and from my XPRIZE experience was that I had a lot of exposure to people in the industry and in the budding new space industry, you know, made great connections, friends, colleagues, and um, I've been connected with all those people for the past 10 years since then. Yeah, it's, it's quite amazing, even from a, a small perspective of uh, how we are in the, in the scope of things here at TGP Nominal, that the, the space community is very inviting. You would think that it would be a very large group given the scope of how many people are involved with the building of rockets, so to speak. But what it comes down to is that you do start to see the same people as you attend conferences and events, and it becomes a smaller group that are interacting. And for the most part, the industry wants to see growth, and so they want to bring more people in. And especially when it comes to communication, the arts, those are areas where we all know it's important to be able to talk to the public and get them interested in spaceflight. Otherwise, you know, that's the core part of a lot of funding for a lot of these ventures. And so, you know, that kind of ties it back into Yuri's Night, where that's kind of Yuri's Night mission is to educate people about human spaceflight, to get them excited about human spaceflight. You know, its roots are in the history of spaceflight. April 12th was picked as an international celebration because the first human in space was Yuri Gagarin on April 12th, 1961. And then the first space shuttle flight was also April 12, 1981. And so when Yuri's Night was being created, that date was picked as kind of a galactic holiday where the stars seemed to align for big events. And, you know, right off its start, it had 60 to 70 events around the world showing that, you know, people had an interest in celebrating space, but also in educating other people about space. Your first experience at uh, Yuri's Night, what kind of things were you actually doing? So the very first one with LA, I had helped out by setting up sort of a photo booth. I created a background like, you know, your standard astronaut floating in space with a, the face mask cut out. So kids and parents would come in, we'd take their photo and kind of put them inside a spacesuit with either Earth or Mars behind them. And you know, it was just simple photoshopping, but for 2003, that seemed pretty amazing to a lot of people. And then for the party itself, we just kind of helped to keep things going. We weren't really doing too much at the party. We we're just enjoying ourselves. And the party itself had a guest speaker. And George and Loretta, I think, both addressed the crowd. It was very simple. And then the most amazing part about it was that it takes a bunch of planning. But then when it comes down to it, you should really have everything you know, all your ducks aligned, so it's all in autopilot, and you can just enjoy the evening, regardless if you're the host or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've kind of ke- tried to keep that attitude for any event that I help run, is that I want it to be a good event, but at the same time, I want to enjoy it. And for the most part, that means streamlining it as simple as possible. This year, I'm kind of doing a little bit of both in Cape Canaveral and Cocoa Beach. In Cape Canaveral, we're just doing a, a straight-out party. We're going to be at Baki Wine Bar, and we've got two 
different musical acts. We've got a band called the Winos that are going to play. And then we've got a DJ coming on afterwards. And so that kind of basically sets the mood for the whole thing. And then just with the projector and a YouTube list of videos from Yuri's Night playing against the wall, that's pretty much the entire event. And then you kind of add in a little bit of food for catering and decorations and a few other things here and there. And it's and you've got a world space party. You know, it's never too late to create an event unless, of course, it's like May or June, then it might not work. <laughs> but um, we encourage people to try to hit April 12th as closely as possible. So that first event's on April 11th um, because Saturday night is the night to do an event like that. Yeah. Um, but the second event we're running is actually more academic. It's part of the Lunar Surface Applications 5 workshop that's going to be in Cocoa Beach. And for that, we're running an analog panel. So analog research is where you go to uh, an environment similar to where you would explore. And in for the most cases, that means near the moon or Mars. And we're going to have experts talk about their experience being out in the field. Um, I'm going to talk about the 100-day Mars simulation that I did up at FMARS in the Arctic, the Flashline Mars Arctic Research Station. Um, we've got a member from the High Seas program that was in Hawaii for the same duration for four months. Um, we've got someone from Swampworks here at KSC who's going to talk about field testing and desert rats. Mm -hmm. um, and then we have someone from Aquarius Reef Base um, where they simulate missions underwater here in Florida. And then our kind of our um, celebrity or high profile person, if you will, is astronaut Katie Coleman, wow. who has both done a NEMO mission underwater at Aquarius Reef Base and also, of course, been on the International Space Station. So she's going to be able to relate how working underwater and working in space in itself is actually preparation for a bigger mission. And if you think about the, the time that the crews spend on the International Space Station, it's six months or roughly six months. And that's done on purpose because that's approximately the trip time to go to Mars. Mm -hmm. So they're learning how to adapt in microgravity and keep themselves healthy so that, you know, when they arrive on the red planet, they're ready to go um, and that their bones are bones and muscles are strong and they're ready to readapt um, in a short amount of time to get the most amount of science out of the mission as possible. Mm -hmm. um, so that, you know, it's very academic compared to the other event. But it's still celebrating human space flight, um, bringing together experts and, you know, open doors to the public. And I think that's, that's a hard thing to do to make an event free. But the organizers of the, of the workshop were enthusiastic about adding it on and saw the value of having sort of at least one open door event for the public. We see that more and more with conferences as well. You have like a public day or you have a public highlight lecture or something that tries to get the door open to get new people interested in space. Now, you mentioned that one of your events is going to be featuring uh, Katie Coleman. Now, she's she is amazing in her own right. I mean, she was up there, though, with... Um, was she up there with Ron Garan? She was. Katie uh, and I have been able to work together on a few things over the years, and all that started because of Ron Garan. Ron approached Jury's Night in 2010 saying that hey, I'm going to be launching roughly on the 50th anniversary of when Yuri launched. Can I bring a T-shirt to space with me to wear for Yuri's night, Cosmonautics Day? And, of course, our answer was, yeah, where do we send it? Of course. Where do, <laughs> what else can we send? <laughs> and um, so we had sent him a T-shirt, Yuri's night T-shirt. And a few months later, he contacted us back and said, hey, do you think you could send five more of those? <laughs> and so um, we had six 
Yuri's Night t-shirts flying and being worn on Yuri's Night in 2011 for the 50th anniversary of human spaceflight. And, you know, that's already extremely exciting for a volunteer like me who's been working on this for a while. To It's kind of like getting your educational payload flown in space. Anyway, uh, yeah, Katie was part of the crew, and there's some great photos of Ron and Katie together wearing the t-shirts, having fun. What could be more perfect than, you know, astronauts in space having fun wearing a Yuri's Night shirt on Yuri's Night? And um, that that's just, you know, been a, a great leap to being able to work with both of them. I also worked with Katie for that year. It was the, I was at MIT doing my postdoc in the manned vehicle lab with David Newman, and one of the things going on there, the reason I was brought in was to help with the 150th anniversary celebration with the exploration symposium. And for that symposium, they, we really wanted to have a message from space. So Katie, being an MIT alumni, was alum, excuse me, was able to um, help us set up a video recording greeting for the 150th and also a tour of the space station. She took, I think it was like a 10 minute video of just floating through space, through the space station, giving an overview of all the systems. And I think she did it on no sleep. I think everyone else was asleep when she did it because she's being nice and quiet to make sure she's not like, you know, waking anyone else up. But the space <laughs> station itself is extremely loud with all the pumps and uh, ventilation systems anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of that got that eerie, you know, it's quiet, but it's loud at the same time. And so I've been in touch with Katie since then. And it's been a pleasure to work with her. And I look forward to being on a panel with her as well. Didn't she do a, a flute duet with Ian Anderson from Jeffro Tull? Yep, she did. And I believe that's still available on YouTube. Yeah. Basically, uh, if anybody out there doesn't know what actually happened there, it, she was on the space station and Ian Anderson, I believe, was at Star City, wasn't he, in, in Russia? Yeah, and they tried to basically synchronize at the same time so that they were playing together. And um, Chris Hadfield did something similar when he was commander station as well, where he was doing sort of a duet with... Uh, uh, with the Bare Naked Ladies, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, that, that was um, quite a momentous year for, uh, for Yuri's Night. And I think it gives us a good snapshot of where we can grow to in terms of global reach. And one thing to keep in perspective is that Yuri's Night itself is constantly changing. I think that the number of events is always a good measure of where we're at and the the number of countries we reach. But it's not necessarily the same as it was before, where we're seeing a lot of events that are becoming a lot more, I guess you could say, either high profile or larger. You know, we're going from events of 15 to 20 people, which are, I think, the, the fundamental Yuri's Night uh, events, to events that are two or 300 people that are selling tickets and pretty significant locations and people. And just overall, it's just how things are growing. And so, you know, I'd like to see us be both. I'd like, I'd like to see those kind of flagship events. I'd like to see you know, every country getting involved. The, I think my favorite part working on Yuri's Night is Uh, When I get to help approve events, I get to see where they are in the world, what they're going to do. You know, sometimes the event organizer will put an estimate of how many people will be there. That's always cool to see as well. Mm -hmm. But it's just, you know, being able to see that, you know, clicking a few things to make sure it gets categorized right, hitting approve. 
And then going back to that map and just seeing that dot appear is pretty amazing. I'm hoping that Yuri's Night is a mechanism that can help people connect and get interested in human spaceflight. I'm Miles, that's Leroy. We're smoking Cuban cigars here. According to my Yuri Gagarin watch, it is 10 of 8 in the morning here. And uh, it's worth noting that the Gagarin mission was already over by now. So he right. one he already ejected from his Vostok, <laughs> come down in a cornfield. Wow, you know, isn't that amazing? And you know, they, they wanted to keep that secret because they were concerned that it wouldn't be considered an aeronautical record because he didn't land he with land the spacecraft. And for a long time, that was a state secret. And that's just one of the many little aspects of this mission that are, that are part of the lore. Also part of the lore, and Leroy can uh, <laughs> shed some light on this, are all the traditions that uh, came out as a result of what Yuri That's did right. in right. his lead up to the That's flight. Right. Tell us a little bit about well, that. You know, the Russians, very superstitious people, a lot of, lot of tradition. You don't want to break into those traditions in case there's, you know, cause any bad luck. Uh, one of them is a Yuri Gagarin tree that was planted in his honor after his April 12, 1961 flight, uh, Cosmonautics Day. Uh, every crew since his flight has come and touched that tree before their flights, before good luck, and we were no exception on TMA-5 and going up on Expedition 10. Uh, a lot of other traditions, as you know, Miles. Yeah, the, yeah, the irrigation of the tire of the bus leading out to yes, that launch yes. pad, which... Ob obligatory, had to do that. Didn't <laughs> want to cause any bad luck. Didn't yeah, want to so, cause uh, You know, Yuri's Night as di uh, Cosmonautics Day is known in the U.S. and actually around the world in other, other countries. Uh, great tradition carried on. One of the great gutsy performances of all time, and, and I couldn't help but think a little bit of the spirit of Yuri. Absolutely, and to, to salute uh, the day of cosmonautics and Yuri's night, we're smoking these nice Cuban cigars, a tie-in of course. Yeah, the former Soviet Union, Cuban missile crisis, rockets, missiles, Yuri, you know. It all comes together for us, and let's hope in the next 49 years we can celebrate many more than another 500 people in space. And uh, yeah, they, don't, they don't let us have any vodka, but we've got these cigars, right? I so we can toast with these cigars. We'll toast the cigars, and uh, let's give it the Russian toast. Hey, Nazdorovia, Yuri. Cheers, Yuri. Cheers. To put it into perspective, the amount of events that took place for the 50th anniversary of Yuri's flight was in its 500s, wasn't it? Yeah, it was actually more than 600 events. There were, I think, 30-something events that were unverified. Just because of how many events we were getting, we were trying to reach out to whoever would submit the event and be like, hey, you didn't put any information in our MCC. You know, we just want to verify that you're real or not. And so a lot of them are either you know mail would bounce or get filtered or they wouldn't the english wouldn't be the first language or they were just you know registering and it wouldn't get verified so we had like 567 that were verified and then another 30 plus that put it put us over 600 and i believe it was in 75 countries or just over 75 countries and there was an event in every continent wasn't there that's right we've had the the south pole involved over the last you know five or more years they've been one of the super fun locations to hear about because they usually they usually get registered like within days before yuri's night and then you know it's hard to tell with a location like that are like okay are they actually doing something and then the photo <laughs> comes and you're like yeah they definitely did a yuri's night they they usually find all the spare parts that they can from the different research stations and we've seen a few photos of like costume parties down in the south pole and those are really fun to see uh we jokingly said last year if, if, if you want to go to a party where you're guaranteed to have a cold beer that would be the one 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> you might be licking an icicle for most of it, but... <laughs> so, what were you doing yourself um, on, the, on the 50th? I, mean, I imagine it would have been a, a really busy time for you. For the 50th, I was at MIT, and so there were a few of events going on. MIT had an event at a local pub. AIAA, that's Professional Society for Aerospace, they had a Russian history lecture that I participated in. And then I believe there was one other event that I had attended. So I was kind of like, you know, jumping around from event to event locally. And then at the same time, you know, there was a lot going on online our website got so overloaded that it basically shut down and so we had to like ramp up the bandwidth and like contact our servers and get everything going and so it was kind of like a non-stop 24 hours or more of um of something happening um talking to different newspapers radio stations just it was it was really exciting to be part of that i mean my first official event was actually the 50th anniversary uh, and it was just a local event. It was a lecture more than anything else. Uh, we had a, a really fascinating guy um, called Terry Ransom. Now, Terry has, well, he's a rocket scientist, <laughs> basically. He, or engineer, actually. Um, he has worked on the space shuttle program. I, I believe he had something to do with the structure of the fuel tank for Columbia. Um, he's also worked on the Mars Express and a few other missions as well and he put on a lecture about Yuri's Night and we actually had some people over from Russia for it and they laid on some Russian snacks and Russian beer and <laughs> we raised a beer to, to Yuri so it was it was a really good evening. <laughs> like I said it, it's any kind of event is just you know for the most part a lot of fun and that's kind of a key part of it is that it's got to you've got to be able to celebrate and enjoy yourself to really get the most out of it Yuri's night it's kind of like oh yeah you're having a fun party oh did you know that the first human in space flew today like 50 plus years ago and people are like oh okay i get it that's what yuri is and then later on i hear things so when's that yuri party gonna be again <laughs> and like every april 12th <laughs> going back to the 50th again the the launch of um first orbit the the film actually in sync with when Yuri actually launched. Yep. Uh, that was just truly amazing to watch. Are, are you aware of um, First Orbit, John? No, can't say that I am. Um, it's on YouTube. I'd definitely go and check it out. We'll put it on a, a link on the show notes for the, for the episode. Basically, what they did was they asked the, the people that were on the space station at the time to film out of the portholes there at certain points of time um which went in sync with what yuri would have seen out of his porthole as he was flying around orbit and they actually mixed it in with the sound of yuri's voice and they obviously put subtitles on there so you knew what was going on and it was the entire flight that um yuri took part in all mi mixed together to make this really amazing film mm, nice i'll have to check that out yeah, it was put together by Chris Riley, and it was basically Yuri's orbit was 108 minutes. And so it took them a few times from the space station to get an orbit that wasn't too, um, I guess, overblown with clouds to so you'd actually be able to see the ground within the shot. 
And so it was pretty momentous. I don't know if it was two or three million people watched it in within one day. Yeah. And that's pretty impressive given that we're not talking about, you know, a 10 second video of a cat falling off of something. It's, you know, 108 <laughs> minutes of just space in the background with like, you know, some music and some oh, um, Yuri voiceover. There was tons of events. I think there's a lot in the UK, actually, of first orbit kind of viewing events. Yep, there, and, um, there was. It was perfect for pretty much everything. I think we had it whatever event we were running with the MIT event, I think we just had it on in the background. As that was what we were showing on the projector. And people were like, oh, what is that? And, you know, you tell them that's what Yuri saw. Um, and we actually showed it at the event that we went to as well. So every um, Yuri's Night event in the UK... Uh, I don't know across the globe, but definitely in the UK, we're encouraged to play this this film, and um, it was just amazing. For you, I mean, you you must have seen some quite unusual things um, through organising different events. What's what's really stuck out for you? Uh, it's a great question. There's some things I don't I don't know if they're unusual, but they might be more unexpected in terms of wow, I'm really glad to see something like that and. I, I think of schools when I think of that because, you know, as much as we'd love to be able to educate people at a younger age about exploration and about the things we do, it's hard to tell how much of that's actually making it making the cut. And every year we definitely have schools involved. And it wasn't until a few years ago, I guess, that I started seeing the first pictures of classroom events where they would basically have a day where they would create costumes. And there, I remember seeing like kids wearing cardboard robots and, you know, planets stuck to them and things like that. And I'm like, then we're actually, you know, reaching the next generation when we're, when we're seeing things like that. So I think that was kind of exciting to see. I think more along the, the unexpected or unusual. I mean, the South Pole, of course, is one of those big ones. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you never know whether or not we're going to be able to get participation. I think last year we had three different South Pole events at different stations. You know, it, it just depends year to year if you can actually get through to them with an email because it depends how bad their year is and how much data can actually even be transferred for them to even communicate. And, you know, when they when they get one giant chunk of communications at a time, then the, hey, are you throwing a party? One kind of falls to the bottom. One of the earlier ones, there was a tea ceremony in a cherry blossom time in Japan. I think that's very, very unique. One of my favorite unusual uh, locations, and not unusual because it's a weird place, but but because of its, I guess, English name is Batman Turkey. Um, that's just cool. I don't know what they did, but I like Batman. So, <laughs> and that's you know that's also bridging the cultural jump is that there's a lot of people that are interested in comics and sci-fi and might not know a lot about actual space flight and um, getting people interested in that community to kind of get them interested in uh, human space flight I think is important as well and you know we've seen a lot of vendors out there that have geek clothing lines that I think are really helping with that cultural connection mm-hmm. and I think that in the future I know that I'm going to be attending Megacon in Orlando but I'm sure that in the future Yuri's Night will have a table or booth set up at some of these events to really engage with a, a larger public that uh, might be interested in participating you're going to have to let us know how that goes actually uh, yeah. Megacon <laughs> that would be cool 
Didn't yeah, you? I went last year and just basically the, um, it took most of the day just to walk around the whole thing. Um, I wasn't even standing in line for anything. I think if you go in to stand in line for an autograph from one of these heroes, these sci-fi heroes, then you probably have to go for two days because you're going to spend three hours waiting for one autograph. So currently you're working for Space Florida. Um, you're the uh, project manager for research and development. Um, what actually do they do at Space Florida? So Space Florida, we're a state entity funded by the state of Florida. And our overall objective essentially boils down to job creation. We're economic development for the state in aerospace. And we're also the spaceport authority. So we help companies uh, locate to Florida, uh, help them with infrastructure, financial deals. And again, the overall concept is job creation. The areas that I work in are more specific to workforce development. So that includes competitions, grants for universities, and also education programs like our egg drop competition. So what does, yes. what does that, well, apart from dropping eggs, but what does that actually involve? <laughs> Well, it's, I guess the full name would probably help. It's the Planetary Lander Egg Drop Competition. And so it's a K-12 through program where schools across Florida are invited to compete by designing a, a lander, not a lunar lander, but any, you know, any surface lander to protect their egg from a two-story fall onto the concrete. And it's competitively scored by presentation that they give and obviously how the uh, lander performs. And it has a lot of um, kind of mission constraints that are, you know, analogous to a real mission in terms of a maximum weight, a maximum size. So it actually fits inside the rocket and can be launched to its destination. And then some material restraints as well. So they can't just surround it with foam or, you know, some sort of galactic gel. It helps the kids learn about systems engineering and how to design a lander and then also you know how to have fun with the theme some of them dress up in really cool fun kind of theme outfits um they come up with creative names like the the eggonauts and um <laughs> it's uh it's a lot of fun so it's it's our our kind of our main educational activity that we do every year and, and a lot of the activities are a lot of them are very simple to do and don't require a lot of materials or costs and they can, they're a great way of uh, starting that passion for space. There's a lot of simple launch techniques. There's, there's water launch, there's the stomp rockets. One of our executive members, D, out of Calgary, uh, Canada, had put together a board of activities that kids could do for Yuri Night. So it's basically a Pinterest board collection of activities. That got me to kind of, hey, I should pay attention to this other social media that's going, that's starting up. And I haven't done much personally on Pinterest, but that board kind of leapfrogged us um, to really getting into it this year. So for this series night, we've been very active in terms of uh, putting up images of astronauts, cosmonauts, images from space, videos. And so that's, that's kind of a fun thing to check out as well. Will you be conducting a google hangout this year yes we're doing a very special google hangout um over the past history of yuri's night we're now going into year 15 we've had some form of global webcast or something live to help connect people but as social media has grown people are becoming more and more connected without us having to do that and 
So the demand kind of got up and down depending on how you want to look at it. And so to you know take advantage of both being live and also of you know being able to record to YouTube, um, we did a series of Google Hangouts over the last few years, and we're only doing one this year. One coming up or you know now or it's happened depending on when you're listening um, <laughs> for April 12th, which means you can go watch it recorded, which is the whole point of being able to record these things, is with the New Horizons team. And so the Hangout's going to be exclusively talking about that mission and Pluto and how that is a important part of the overall uh, exploration framework. It's going to be talking a lot about robotic missions, but how they're the kind of the leading edge of the sword for human exploration missions. And so working, talking with Alan Stern and his team is going to be a really cool opportunity for Yuri's night to, to have live on Google Hangouts. And I believe that's going to be to Eastern on Sunday, April 12th, but it'll be recorded to YouTube as well. I'll also, after the event, add links to um, the Google Hangout so people can have a look at it from there as well. Perfect. Yeah, don't leave this podcast. Stay here and then go watch the recording of that later. <laughs> the the New Horizons kind of link is important to us. We worked with the Curiosity team in 2012 for the uh, landing. We helped host landing parties all over the world, teaming up with some of our partners like Explore Mars. And um, that was a really good opportunity for us to kind of work on a professional mission in terms of contributing to an outreach program and so we're hoping that during the summer we'll be doing a little bit more with New Horizons and helping them get their message out there to teach people about Pluto exploration and what they're up to. One other important thing to mention is that for Yuri's Night it's it's never too late to get involved. Look for an event near you. If there isn't an event near you start your own event. Just get a bunch of people together, you know, go for a drink, go for a dinner, go for a walk under the stars. There's a million ways and probably, well, millions probably, should, should I be saying billion and billion? So go out there, um and beans, <laughs> and um, celebrate space, celebrate human space flight. And then, of course, register so we know what you're up to and share your photos. We, we've got something called Yuri's Night Live. Essentially, it's Tumblr, and our community can submit photos and videos of their event to let us know how it went. And um, we're actually conduct a survey with World Space Week to find out what people think about space social events, what they would like to see at them. And um, I'll help share that link as well. But essentially, we're looking for feedback from the community so that we can help enhance all these events. Before we go, Ryan, there's one thing I'd, I'd like to do. We do this with all um, our special guests that we have on board. And, and that's we like to make them our... Um, honorary crew members by doing that we issue them with one of our tgp nominal space patches so i'm I'm having to do this virtually with you at the moment but uh oh thank you it's got some sharp edges we may have to tape those up before we send them to space (laughs) (laughs) but yeah so what we'll do with that is we'll send it over to you and if um you in return could send me a photograph of you with the with the patch and then we will put you on our page of honorary crew members. Excellent. <laughs> Thank you. Well, thanks for um, 
taking time out to be with us, Ryan. It's been awesome having you on the show. Thank you, guys. And um, I hope you guys have enjoyed preparing the podcast and being involved with it. I think it's going to be great. And I look forward to hearing more. I guess one last thing is I hope that everyone rocks the planet. I knew you were going to say nice. that. <laughs> <laughs> I had to. It's a, It's in my contract as a as a um, unpaid volunteer that the the less you sleep the more you have to say it <laughs> <laughs> thanks ryan thank you guys that was ryan Kobrick. um quite an amazing guy isn't he absolutely i mean he's he's done so so much and um, now taken over the reins for yuri's night yeah that's an awful lot of responsibility but he sounds like he's having fun doing it and that's that's half the job that is the main thing, and I think the whole point of Yuri's Night is to have fun. But, as I say, it's also there to get the message across about space and science and technology and um, all the other bits and pieces that go together to make uh, the space community what it is. April 12th always reminds me of what got me so excited and so impassioned about space exploration. I'm Eric Anderson. I'm the president and CEO of Space Adventures, as well as one of the co-founders. Space Adventures has had the great privilege of being the only company to have provided experiences for private space explorers to visit the International Space Station. When I was a boy growing up, space captivated me. From an early age, I knew that I wanted to be an astronaut or I wanted to help enable humanity's outward expansion into space. Some of the greatest heroes of humankind were those who explored space in the early days, led by Yuri Gagarin, the very first human being to orbit the Earth. And then followed by people like Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, who were the first humans to walk on the moon. Space represents the future. Space represents what's good about people, about human society, about opening frontiers and exploring, the curiosity, the same feelings that we have about why we're here and what is in our own planet are those feelings that give us the yearning to learn more about space and the entire universe around us. And I personally believe that thousands of years from now, people will remember Yuri Gagarin and Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin as the true explorers who opened up space with those very first steps. And it all started on April 12th. I would like to give my biggest congratulations, not only to those first space explorers, but to all the space explorers who followed and to all those who will follow and for the entire cause of space exploration, because I think it is one of the most important things that we as humans do. Back in 2013, the Garbage Pod asked the space community, what does Yuri's Night mean to you? And I thought it would be really nice to share some of our favourite replies. Why? Because I really think that these really show the true essence of what Yuri's Night is all about. The first reply was from Blair, Chris and Franklin from NASA TV's NASA Edge. Listen, what we want to do for Mark is to answer this uh, very serious question about uh, what does Yuri's Night mean to you, and that would be, in this case, each of us. I have three words that describes Yuri's Night. Shuttle, 
Bay Confessions. I just think of Yuri's Night as being a party. Well, it is kind of a party because you're celebrating this incredible event that really, I guess for many uh, of us who are interested in space, it really started it all in terms of modern space flight. So, I mean, you know, obviously you have to be excited about that. I mean, who is Yuri, by the way? Uh, first uh, astronaut, or, well, cosmonaut? Cosmonaut, Would you call astronaut. Because co- he really, did he fall under the cosmonaut uh, moniker? I would think so. Yeah. Well, one of us should say cosmonaut. The other should say astronaut. That way where our bases are covered. Cosmonaut, right? astronaut. Okay. One, two, three. Cosmonaut. Astronaut. Cosmonaut, yeah. <laughs> or a taikonaut. But no, he wasn't He wasn't ever. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. they had. Yeah. Well, anyway, that, it's, it's true. It's, it's a big party and it's a big event because uh, you're celebrating this significant accomplishment. Well, the thing is we covered the Yuri's Night at NASA Ames a few years back, and, and that was an eye-opener. Like, you would not believe uh, – you just got to watch our show. And that was my first experience with um, uh, Yuri's Night, and I was in awe at what the uh, the folks at Ames put on for their Yuri's Night, and it was just mind-blowing. It was yeah. over the top, wasn't it? It was yeah. a little over the in top. In fact, I don't think they were invited to do it again after that. <laughs> <laughs> Notice we weren't invited to do it again either. We enjoyed it too much. Yeah. But, you know, it, actually, in all seriousness, the celebrations have continued every year, and a lot of the other centers have gotten involved and done different things, but... Uh, I can't, I'm with Chris. I can't help but think back to Shuttle Bay Confessions, yeah. one of the funner uh, segments we did uh, for funner. I don't know if that's the appropriate no, word. That's not maybe more fun. Maybe in the yeah. pond. I don't know. But yeah. no, no, more fun? The, yeah. 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 The, one of the more fun segments. But we did. I have to say that was um, quite an experience. Yes. Asking questions uh, to the Shuttle Yuri, Yuri Knight participants. Yes. Yeah. And I do like that it has an international flair yes. as well. That's, that's really cool because it's not yeah. just a – you know, our space program or the Apollo program or the shuttle program or anything like that or the future SLS program, it, it's kind of timeless in its origin. And, and I think that's cool. Hey, yours night, one of a kind, great party, great atmosphere, learn about space, learn about everything. Absolutely. And one thing to remember for all the participants out there, if you're lucky enough to pull off what Yuri did, don't drink in orbit. It's, 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 <laughs> I want to remind people celebrating, be safe out there. Don't drink and orbit the planet. That was the guys from uh, NASA Edge, and I was completely blown away when I actually got this piece of audio from them, because this was my first actual connection with NASA. (laughs) Shuttle Bay Confessions? Um, Yeah, I will put a link to that on there. Um, They made a uh, set that looked a little bit like a, a shuttle bay, and they asked some of the people that were partying that night to talk about what they actually knew about space now i'm not 100 percent sure if many of them that they were asking actually knew about space or whether they'd just had maybe a little bit to drink (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) but it is quite amusing and i will put a link to uh the event that NASA Edge were involved in at uh, NASA Ames, uh, which keeps coming up. Ryan mentioned NASA Ames, Loretta mentioned NASA Ames, they've ne- mentioned NASA Ames, and they, they might actually be mentioned again very soon. The next clip that I'm going to play you doesn't need any introduction, so um, I'm just going to play it in. My name is Kate Arkless Gray, but many people know me as Space Kate. Uh, For the last few years, I have become completely obsessed with space. And it all started when I met a guy from NASA. 
a chap called Dr Chris McKay, who turns out to be one of the world's leading astrobiologists. He's an absolutely fascinating guy. When I met him, I'd never met anybody from NASA, and I didn't ever dream that I would, because NASA is like Father Christmas. You know that it exists, but you're never going to meet it. It was so kind of far away and untouchable. And that's why I think events like Yuri's Night are so important, because it means that people like me, who are interested, who would dream of space if it was a bit more reachable, have a way of connecting with other like-minded people and, and perhaps even meeting some scientists, some astronauts, and some rocket scientists, mission controllers, or just other people who love space. And that's brilliant. So after I met Chris McKay at a theoretical physics conference in Canada, as you do, he invited me down to the Mojave Desert where they were doing some work on Mars analogues. And it was so exciting. And, you know, exploring and doing science. And I loved it. And uh, I was due to come home, but everybody was talking about this thing called Yuri's Night. And I didn't know what it was. But apparently, at NASA Ames, over in California, they were going to have a huge event, two-day event, one day all about education, and one day more for the adults and more of a party. It sounded too good to miss, frankly, so I actually changed my flight home to London, and I stayed an extra week so that I could go to Yuri's Night. And it was incredible. They turned this NASA base into an exhibition hall, an education space. They turned one of the aircraft hangars into almost like a, a dance hall, you know, with DJs and lights and strobes and lasers. They had a huge music stage. They had an aerobatics show. They had the Sophia plane there. It was amazing. Um, and the kids were coming along and building their little paper rockets, doing little air rockets and shooting them off across the tarmac and you could have a chance at driving a little rover that they use uh, they've been testing out in the desert and you could get your little rover driving certificate it was great and they had some amazing speakers there you know i learned all about lcross i actually heard from the lady who founded yuri's night who was presented with a, an award there and it was such a nice atmosphere people from all different walks of life young people older people and and the children were having so much fun with the education stuff, and the adults are having so much fun dancing on a NASA base. Who does that? That's great. The next two Yuri's Nights I've attended have been completely different, but wonderful in their own ways. The second one I went to, I was actually invited to speak, and I, I told people about my crazy space adventure and my dream of getting to space. And uh, I was up there with a bunch of comedians and also space scientists. So it was a really nice mix of sort of entertainment and, and learning. And of course, it was in a bar, so we had a bit of fun and it, it was a lovely, lovely event. And the third one I attended was at the British Interplanetary Society, where they showed a film um, called First Orbit, which had been created to kind of echo Yuri's orbit around the Earth. And I was very excited because Paolo Nespoli, the Italian astronaut, was the chap who filmed most of it from the space station, and he was the first astronaut I ever met. I get completely overexcited and childish about space. And you know what? I don't care. Because it is exciting. I don't want to be a grown-up and be like, 
Well, yes, there's some very complicated physics that means that this rocket can go to space. Obviously, the physics is amazing too, but if you watch a rocket launch, if you feel a rocket launch, you see it, the brightness, the sound, that low rumble that shakes all of your bones, space is exciting. It's exciting! Look at that! It's amazing! And I think that's a really important thing. And that's what I try and share with people. To make people realise that space is real. That's one of the hardest things about space. It's such a thing that you dream of as a child and then people are like, well, you're never going to go to space, don't dream that anymore, grow up. Well, why? Why shouldn't you dream that? And that's why I think that Yuri's Night is so important. We celebrate not only the anniversary of the first person going into space, but also 20 years later of the shuttle's first launch. And what a nice way to get the public involved, get people involved to come and celebrate something which is genuinely exciting. And it doesn't matter if you don't understand all of the physics and the science behind it. It's cool. And maybe that's enough. And if you come in and you think that's really exciting and really interesting, maybe you'll go and learn a bit more about the science of it. If you meet people who are doing this work, maybe you'll think that, well, I could do that, or my children could do that. So come along to an event. It's so much fun. You'll meet like-minded people, and you'll find it's absolutely okay to be ridiculously excited about space. Kate is a, a friend of the Garbage Pod. She's been involved with us for a couple of years when it comes to Yuri's Night and I don't know anybody as passionate about space <laughs> as Kate. Sounds like it. That's awesome. <laughs> she is absolutely amazing. She's known online as Space Kate, as she just said. Um, she's on Twitter as at Space Kate and she just travels around the world going to different space related events. Yeah, I'm a little bit envious in some cases. <laughs> but she is she's a lovely lady and I could listen to her all day actually because there needs to be more people out there that passionate about space. Oh yeah, her excitement for it's almost infectious, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> and this is the reason why I needed to play this in this episode as well. Hello. Ciao. Bonjour. Hello. And privet. I'm Samantha Cristoforetti. Italian ESA astronaut on board of the International Space Station, humanity's outpost in low Earth orbit. Living and working up here, weightless in space, constantly free-falling around our home planet, gives me a proud sense of following in the footsteps of humanity's first explorer of space, Yuri Gagarin. On the 12th of April each year, the international space community joins together to celebrate and commemorate Yuri's flight into space back in 61. Today, I am glad to join from above the globe your festive celebrations. No matter where your Yuri's Night event is taking place right now, remember the historic moment and keep in your minds and souls. Exploration of space is the destiny and the future of humanity. Enjoy and rock the planet. Joining us on the show, we have a very special guest, and it's my privilege to welcome the one and only Richard Garriott into the podosphere. Welcome on board, TGP Nominal, sir. It is 
is great to be with you today. Thank you so much for having me. Now, most people listening to this podcast will know who Richard is, but for the folks out there not familiar with you, how would you describe yourself? Well, uh, let's see. I, I sort of always need to describe uh, two parts of my uh, background. You know, my first claim to fame is uh, that I'm one of the very first ever people to develop computer games really at all, but especially uh, medieval fantasy role-playing games. Uh, uh, I wrote a series of games called Ultima uh, that also generated the term Avatar, which everybody's familiar with, and the category of massively multiplayer games is uh, something I'm credited with. Uh, and then the other aspect is my space side, which is I'm um, uh, uh, one of the people that helped open up the commercial and private spaceflight industry through the XPRIZE and space adventures and things of that nature. And, I've, and of course, uh, I've flown to space myself. I lived on board the International Space Station for two weeks, and uh, I happen to be the first second-generation astronaut, having followed in my father's footsteps. He went up on Skylab and the shuttle. Now, you have a, a very strong connection with Yuri's Night, don't you? I do indeed. Uh, of course, uh, Yuri's Night being founded uh, and, and celebrated really on the same day that in Russia is Cosmonautics Day. It's a big holiday uh, there in Russia, and I've, during my training and uh, at other times, I've celebrated it there in Russia as Cosmonautics Day. But also, uh, Loretta and George Whitesides, the founders of uh, Yuri's Night, are good friends of mine, and uh, I've had the great pleasure to follow them along as they grew Yuri's Night as an event. Then I've, I've come back to, do after my space flight, I've, I came back and did presentations at Yuri's Night and spoke about opening the commercial space frontier. And so I was the first recipient of the Spirit of Yuri's Night Award uh, uh, shortly after my space flight. Science and, and space uh, was a very big part in growing up for you, wasn't it? Yeah, you know, it sure was. Uh, of course, you know, growing up, just a couple blocks outside the front gates of NASA. The neighborhood that I lived in was a neighborhood where many of the astronauts lived. And when I grew up, of course, that's, you know, any child thinks the environment they're growing up in is, is quite normal. And so it felt normal to have, you know, my right-hand neighbor was Joe Engel, another shuttle astronaut, left-hand neighbor, Hoot Gibson, another shuttle astronaut, astronauts over my back fence, in my near neighborhood were, you know, uh, Buzz and Neil and, you know, all the other you know, wow. astronauts everybody knows. The names of were all our neighbors that we hung out with. I grew up with their children, et cetera. But more specifically to your point about science, you know, not only did we spend a lot of time on base at NASA, but my father was constantly bringing home little experiments that he was training with. And so, uh, you know, as a couple of examples, uh, one time he brought home something that he described as a photo multiplier tube. It was a, a aluminum casing with a battery operated uh, device in it that would charge up to high voltage and had a little display screen in the back of it. And you would insert a telescope uh, eyepiece and it had a camera lens, literally just a standard, you know, uh, you know Nikon camera lens you would attach to the front. And then you would go outside at night and you would, it's basically night vision scope. Wow. But this was before the concept of night vision was ever discussed ever. And they were going to use this on Skylab to take pictures of very faint objects in space. But what we used it for was to go prowling in the backyard at night and hunt the attractive cat <laughs> that was, you know, going through the, the, the bushes. And, uh, uh, and similarly, you know, we had one of the first Polaroid instant cameras made out of aluminum long before they became publicly known. Or we had uh, goggles, little glasses you could wear with prisms in it that would reverse left and right. 
because they had learned they were learning that if you wear prisms like this for a period of three days, your brain will actually reverse the image in your mind to feel correct until you take the goggles off. And you have to correct, you have to wait for three or four days before the image <laughs> corrects again, going back to the direction. And so all these kinds of science experiments were just constantly parading through our house as if it was no big deal or not unusual. And it wasn't until I went to school at the University of Texas that I met, you know, bakers and firemen and policemen and all these Sesame Street people that I used to think was some fantasy on television. But now I realize, no, no, you know, I'm living the fantasy land and, uh, uh, and, and Sesame Street is, in fact, much more statistically normal than uh, I had realized. How old were you when your dad was launched uh, for the um, Skylab mission? I was about 14 years old when he launched on Skylab, and he had been training for that since I was about six years old. So pretty much all of my life that I have any memory of, uh, you know, my father was uh, already training for those uh, space flights. So uh, a lot of the kids around you at school, they were in the same sort of situation where they're parents were involved with NASA and things or was it a little bit different for you than most uh, kids it was about 50 percent it was interesting the school I went to you know the, the NASA facilities around the nation were often created in you know well first of all they were scattered out across the country on purpose to kind of bring work and scientific and economic advancement you know across the country and in particular the Johnson Space Center in Houston was um, was created uh, in basically a swamp I mean they, they literally had to to cut some trenches in the swamp and drain it out and then build the buildings on top of it. And so the school we went to was, prior to NASA's arrival, a, a farming community school. And so the student body for the school I went to was about 50% farmers and 50% NASA. Uh, and, and even at that time, it, that didn't seem odd. I mean, it seems weird to say it, but, uh, you know, those were the kind of two aspects of life that seemed to be clustered around my neighborhood. It wasn't uncommon at all to have students in our classrooms uh, whose fathers were not only the astronauts, but often, you know, up on the current mission. And so uh, it was very common for our school to be closely monitoring, you know, whatever was happening in space. So were you there at uh, Cape Canaveral for the launch? Uh, I was. So we, we did go to the launch. And, um, uh, of course, you know, even at five miles away, which is as close as you can get, uh, you know, for a... Uh, uh, Kennedy Space Center launch uh, is impressive, uh, to say the least, to see and hear and feel the uh, the strength and power of. You know, we, we watched uh, first the first the main uh, Skylab uh, station launch on a Saturn V, which is uh, is still the most awesome you know vehicle that has left the Earth. Then uh, my father himself launched on a Saturn One B, which is basically the upper two stages of a. Saturn five, and then I was there again for his shuttle launch as well. Yeah, I, I, I imagine the difference was quite astounding, really, because I mean the power of of the Saturn five rockets compared with a, a shuttle, which is powerful enough as it is. Um, to, but the, the the feeling of it must have been something incredible. You know, quite so. But uh, you know, it's interesting that as I was in the ramp up to my own flight on a Soyuz, and a Soyuz, by the way, is a much smaller vehicle, even compared to the Saturn 1B uh, that my father launched onto Skylab, it's, it's quite diminutive. It's really a glorified uh, business jet uh, standing <laughs> on its tail, you might say. Um, but the review stands for it, even the nominal review stands are only one kilometer away, so very close. Wow. And, and if you know the right people, 
uh, and arrange things just right, it's actually possible to stand 200 meters from the base of a Soyuz as it launches, and, really? and that's something I've actually done. And uh, uh, and that is, you know, that's close enough to where if the rocket fails to leave the pad and things go terribly wrong, <laughs> it yeah. probably goes terribly wrong for you as well. And uh, uh, but that's also uh, uh, so. So even though the rocket's smaller, you you can you can make up for that uh, by closing the distance and still have a mighty impressive show. <laughs> A lot of people see from thanks to people like Chris Hadfield and so forth, they see all these science experiments that they're doing. For when the time when you were up there, did you help them with the experiments? I mean, you said you were up there for two weeks. You're not just up there looking at looking out a window and uh, watching the Earth pass underneath. Interesting you mentioned Chris because uh, he is uh, such an incredible uh, spokesperson. You know, one of the, I think one of the great tragedies of, of uh, many of uh, much of the, the decades that have passed uh, with space exploration has been, you know, the fact that it has not been communicated as well as it could be or is now to the general public. Yeah. Uh, you know, in fact, I remember when, when I first signed up, when I first did my first press release for my own space flight, uh, I got a, a very kind letter from uh, Alan Bean, I believe it was, wow. who uh, flew with my father on Skylab. And he said, hey, Richard, you know, I, I saw your press release. I just want to say congratulations. I know this is something you've been trying to pull off for most of your life since I've, since I've known you as a child. Uh, so congratulations on that front. But he also said, I'm also really pleased to hear that you're going because unlike your father and I and all of our contemporaries who were hired either because we were military test pilots or scientists at the top of their scientific game, we, the old guard, were never particularly good at, at coming back and talking about the experiences we had. And I know you well, and I know, you know, your business in games is to communicate uh, passionately about the experiences that you're, you either have had or are trying to uh, pass on to other people. And so I have faith that you will do a better job than we ever did at coming back afterwards and speaking passionately about what, you, what you've just done. And, and I believe that's true. I believe his insight was quite accurate. Uh, not only do I think I did that, but, you know, Chris Hadfield, I think, is... Uh, is the poster child for <laughs> yeah. uh, public outreach uh, as a space explorer, and he has the advantage of, of you know, being both uh, a NASA astronaut and has all the, uh, you know, the, the technical credentials to give him the best street cred possible on that side. <laughs> plus, he's a musician. Plus, he's a great orator. Plus, you know, he uh, uh, loves to you know get down and dirty with uh, you know in the educational side with kids. Um, so it, it's hard to think of a better uh, representative than, than Chris. So what, what kind of things were you doing when you were up there? I was up during the, or right at the tail end of the build process of the International Space Station. They were prior to the cupola, which was one of the last things to go on. Sadly, I missed the cupola. Uh, but I was just up there after the Japanese Kibo uh, module had been attached, which was the last large uh, module. And in fact, for that 10 or 12 years that they were building the International Space Station, I would argue that very little actual science was being done because everybody that was there was either maintaining it or constructing it. So it was a mighty long uh, build process. And since I flew privately, technically they wouldn't, uh, you know, either control or have much of an opinion as to what I did with my time on orbit. Uh, they'd be frankly happy or, you know, not unhappy if what I chose to do was hang out and watch what they were doing and look out the window. That being said, 
as really one of the founders of, of uh, this new era of commercial space flight and the founders specifically of Space Adventures that you know arranged my flight and someone who believes that commercial uh, activity is really going to be the thing that, that drives future access into space and has to, I worked very hard to uh, have a very full science and commercial load of, of uh, work to do, uh, not just to be busy, but specifically to try to find things that were valuable enough to justify future space flights and maybe pay for my own future space flights. And so I think I did more work and provided more value per day than the majority of, uh, of even professional astronauts, just because I was unfettered by the red tape uh, that, uh, that many were. And so I could really uh, put together a, uh, a very sp specifically targeted program for uh, commercial uh, uh, development. And so just as a case study, one of those that I think is particularly valuable, the one I've now repeatedly, I, an experiment I not only flew on my own flight, but then Guy Le Liberté, who flew after me, took it up on his. And more recently, the experiment was flown again on a Dragon spacecraft, un, uh, taken up there unmanned, uh, but then uh, uh, managed by some astronauts on board and, and then returned, uh, was something called protein crystal growth. And, and pardon the depth of this description, but to understand it, there's a little bit you have to, to get, uh, which is that the majority of or, or many drugs that are developed today to fight disease are developed by first studying the structure of a protein that causes a disease. And then in the medical labs, you want to create another molecule that will bond with that protein that causes a problem. And one of the best ways to design a chemical to bond with the bad protein is to first understand the exact structure physically, the shape of that protein. And proteins are very large, very complicated molecules. So one of the ways they, they try to study them is by growing a crystal of that protein and using something called X-ray diffraction to bombard it with X-rays that creates a scatter pattern. They then use supercomputers to figure out what, what caused that scatter pattern and, uh, uh, and they use that to then design a, a drug. The problem with doing that on the ground is that when you when you crystallize something as it goes from liquid to solid, there's a little heat given off which disturbs the growth of the crystal. There's a little convection currents that make the crystals grow smaller and less pure, and so you can't image them very well. But if you grow them in space where there's no gravity, that means there's no up or down vector, that means there's no convection currents. Molecules grow bigger, more purely, and so we grow them in space, shoot them back, bring them back to the ground quickly, do that x-ray diffraction, and you can cut years off the development of drugs. And so that's worth millions of dollars to drug makers, and so that's one of the things that I was trying to uh, demonstrate and ultimately commercialize. That, that is one of those things that I, I see people talking about, how what really comes from the space program? Why are we spending so much money to send people up there when they don't really do anything? And it, it's that kind of story that makes me just want to talk to these people and say, uh, yeah, there's an example right there of what they do. Right. Uh, although, by the way, you know, what's interesting is I am both a, clearly I'm very pro-space, I'm very pro-commercial pro access to space, but I think the skeptics have had a point. The argument that I would make pro-skeptics, but, uh, but then also shows you what we're doing about it, is that if you think about the International Space Station era, you know, we've spent $100 billion building it, we spend $2 billion a year keeping it in orbit, during the shuttle era, we were spending $300 million per astronaut to put somebody there. You know, you add all that up and you're going, whatever experiments you're doing, sure better be worth that price. <laughs> 
And by the way, I have, you know, I researched everything that was going on on the space station to try to look for myself for some things to do. And to be frank, I don't think we were getting nearly that value out of it. The, 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 we, we were spending way more on this international politics, you know, item than I think was justified by the science that for at least the last 10 years, maybe 20, was coming out of the manned operations of a uh, space station. That being said, there's no reason it needs to be that expensive. And the costs now are coming down incredibly fast. Yeah. And, you know, when I go talk about space, I talk about the fact that, you know, the shuttle was the worst at $300 million per person to go to space and one in 70 chance of death for anybody that boarded it. So, you know, that's that's a pretty high price. Uh, you know, on my own flight, uh, well, first, let me go down from that. You know, the, the Soyuz today costs about $50 million a person. Uh, SpaceX thinks they're going to get it down to about $1 million a person. Wow. Uh, my wife's now in the business of making electromagnetically powered launch vehicles, which should get it down to a couple tens of thousands of dollars per person. But even if you get it down to SpaceX's price, call it a million or two per person, I, I earned a few million dollars on my flight. Now, I, I paid tens of millions of dollars to go on my flight, so I lost a lot of money. But as soon as the price is down near SpaceX's you know, numbers, where uh, uh, you know it's uh, ones of millions of dollars to go, well, then I would have made money on my flight. And you know darn well that if I can make money on my flight, I'm going to go a lot. And not only that, but there's a lot of people who are smarter than me, like you guys, who are going to think of some mighty good reasons to go, too. And so the, as soon as the value of what you can do in space is greater than the cost of access to space, there's going to be a huge increase in the activities ha happening in space. And we're now easily within a decade of that economic reversal uh, to where I think critics can make a good you know, case today, but their case is getting more and more difficult uh, as we drop the price. So do you think there will be a time when your average Joe would be able to afford to actually fly in space? Uh, absolutely. And, and when I say average, though, let me qualify that. Even the current price that, say, Virgin Galactic is, is charging for suborbital is well way too expensive for, quote, the average Joe. You know, they're charging a you know, quarter million dollars or so for a six-minute trip to space. The, the good news is that if you, if you look at any form of transportation other than rockets... Like, and what I mean by that is cars, boats, trains, and planes. All those others only cost about three times the amount you spend on energy to own and operate. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you don't think much of driving your car around. But you would, you would think a lot more about it if every time you filled up your car with gas, you crushed the car and bought a new one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, none of us would drive very much. Cars would only be used for the most important travel moments in human history. <laughs> Otherwise, you just wouldn't bother. And right now, you know, rockets are basically or fundamentally non-reusable. And so are mostly non-reusable. And even when SpaceX gets it, it'll be mostly reusable. And that's why they get it down to about a million instead of 300 million. Mm -hmm. It is that they're going to high levels of reusability. But until we literally get a single stage to orbit space plane that lands in the same configuration that it took off and you can just you know inspect it, refuel it, put a new passenger or payload in it and fly again, you're not going to reach the ultimate uh, low end. But that's one of the things, for example, my wife is trying to build with her company Escape Dynamics is these single stage to orbit externally powered rockets. And if you do something like that, or frankly anything that could be single stage to orbit and fully reusable, 
then you just get down to the energy cost. And you know, the fuel, even on the vehicle I went on, the Soyuz, yeah. the, the you know, it costs if you want to buy a Soyuz, Russia will sell you one for $150 million. If you want to fill the gas tank, it's only a, a few hundred thousand dollars. And so, mm-hmm. so the fuel is almost nothing yeah. compared to the price of the vehicle. And uh, uh, and so in 10 years, maybe 20 years at worst, it really will get down to the price of uh, for a person to go. Uh, once once feasible vehicles are flying at a high flight rate, meaning multiple times per day, like an airplane, mm-hmm. then the price will get down to about 15 to $25,000 per person. And even though that's still not cheap, it's about the same price as a first class ticket to take you to the other side of the earth. Wow. So if you can afford a once in a lifetime first class seat to go to the other side of the earth and back, you will be able to afford a, a ticket instead to go orbit the earth. And as you all know well, once you're in orbit, you can stay in orbit basically indefinitely. Mm-hmm. And so your your long term stay in space will cost you about the same as a first class ticket. Nice. And, and I will perform any science experiment they want me to do for that one. <laughs> Well, but here's the challenge to you, John. The challenge is that there's a lot of other people saying, I'm willing to, what you just said, you know, I'm willing to perform any experiment they want me to. (laughs) Of course, I'll say that and everybody else will say that. And so I think the best answer is think, you got to think of these ideas yourself. You need to, this is going to be the era of of space entrepreneurs. It's going to be the the team that sits down and goes, I'm going to raise money to do the thing I want to do in space because I think it's a good idea. So this is going to be an entrepreneurial space race. And it's going to be those entrepreneurs flying themselves, I believe. And and again, I hope I'm at the front of that line. Okay. Excellent. So you really think that the space race is back on? Unquestionably. <laughs> uh, you know, when people were in their deepest doldrums about space, you know, shortly after the retirement of the space shuttle, you know, here in America at least, it was it was incredibly tragic to hear. You know, you would go up and talk to you know people on the street about space and they're going like oh you know we're out of that business we've retired we as a country have retired out of the human space flight business mm. and of course that was never the intent the intent was we need to save the money on the shuttle to invest in the new launch vehicles yeah. um and so internally the people in the know knew that it technically wasn't the case but that was truly the broad belief you know 90 percent plus i would guess people in the united states really just thought we had stopped the human space uh, race uh, or, or even the plans. Uh, but what I find interesting about what we're doing now is, as pro-NASA as I am, you know, the stuff that's being done in the private sector through SpaceX and others is not only coming online much faster, but it's going to be far more economically efficient and ultimately will also have similar or better capabilities. And so even the old ways of funding space, you know, NASA hiring prime contractors and going back and forth through design process and approvals and all this thing, all the red tape that slows it down and increases the budget dramatically. Those days are, you know, we're still doing some of that. Congress is mandating that we do some of that. But I think that ultimately that will lose out to these more nimble, flexible, entrepreneurial ways that are not just a little bit cheaper, we're talking 10 to 100 times cheaper. And and importantly, enough cheaper that we that we flip the economics to where space becomes profitable versus uh you know uh, arguably a waste well really that's what that was necessary from the beginning because nasa is you know it, it's quasi-government so they get their funding from the taxpayers and so forth and they didn't have to operate like a business well now spacex they've got no choice they've got to make it as clean and as efficient as possible especially when there's really no one else out there right now 
So that SpaceX really came around right time, right place. Of course, Elon Musk, so right person behind it. So I mean, th this is a great time for all of this to be happening now. I quite agree. And, um, you know, and I think the, 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 to me, one of the biggest messages, and to me, this sort of grew out of the XPRIZE. You know, you, uh, you know one, of the, one of the XPRIZE uh, competitors was John Carmack, another uh, mm -hmm. game maker yep. who made the Doom and Quake series of games. And he lived in Texas down near me. So he was the one I could go up and visit and uh, the most easily. And I quickly realized, one, that John Carmack is really smart, which, of course, I already knew that, but uh, he's scary smart. Uh, and the other part was, though, that, you know, you, you look at how he built his rockets. And there were parts that he had to truly do rocket science and invent. So he, for example, worked very hard to make a nozzle to, you know, to combust and exhaust uh, his rocket engine uh, fuels through. And that was true, you know, rocket science invention. But basically every other part that went into that rocket, he did and you can buy on the internet. Uh, you know, and because all the things that used to be exotic, you know, all these exotic alloys to handle cryogenic fuels, those all exist in your air conditioner outside your house now because <laughs> NASA did such a good job democratizing that stuff. And so, you know, they bought all the special tanks, they bought all the, the, the CPUs, the, all the GPS devices, all the accelerometers, uh, you know, all the valves, all the pumps. All those things are just sourced on the internet. And so they just acquire all this stuff. John wrote some really brilliant software and he developed a really brilliant you know, nozzle for his engine. But fa fundamentally, uh, the fact that we are now in this age where you, know, you look at these uh, kids that are competing in first robotics competitions, mm. you give any one of those teams a $100,000 box of rocket parts and they could all build a rocket to go to space. We are now in that era. And so people need to get over their old ways of thinking about how hard it is to go to space. It's right. just not that hard to go to space because we've solved that problem. Now the problem is let's do it efficiently and let's find what is worth doing in space uh, beyond beyond exploration. But when I say beyond exploration, by the way, I think exploration is a, a use to its own, which is very valuable and worthwhile and and should remain nasa's core mission and i think is you know uh, even they would describe it as their core mission uh we just can now do it you know even in this era of tightening budgets the reality of tightening budgets that's just a fact we have to live with you know if your rocket only costs you a tenth of what it used to that leaves you 90 percent of the money to go decide where you want to explore with and so this reduction in cost is going to let nasa do more with less they'll be able to do dramatically more with a little bit less. Then you've also got video games coming out now. You got games like the Kerbal Space Program, which is all about getting you know the smallest detail to be able to get your uh, your, your creatures, whatever they are, because I don't really play it. You know, to get them to the to whatever planet, and then also think about I need to have the fuel and all the other things to get them back. So kids are already being able to play that sort of thing. They're already getting to understand how to get rockets into space, all the things that are necessary other than just put it on a launch pad and off it goes. And I saw another game called Orbit that just released, which is pretty much the same thing, where you have to be able to keep your ship into orbit around various planets using the various physics in space. So it, you know, it's, it's also really good to see that you can now actually try to get to space and know the science behind getting to space before you actually 
try to get to space. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. And, you know, it's one of these things where, you know, I don't know whether to feel happy for or sad for kids of today. Uh, you know, the amount they're able to learn, you know, we, we've got such great educational tools. You know, I have, a, I have some young children myself and I'm constantly looking for things to put in front of them to advance them in this exact same way. And if you think about augmenting a child's mind with the power of interactive tools and the internet, uh, you know, it, it, that's incredibly powerful. And and we're not having to bog them down in more math tables than are useful, if you know what I mean. You know, mm-hmm. we, we had to go and learn these things because there was no internet. Uh, you know, now I have a calculator on my desktop, so I don't really have to know that down as pat as I did in the past. You still want to know it well enough to utilize it, but you don't have to have it memorized in the same way uh, that we used to. So on the one hand, they can skip some parts. On the other hand, they can deepen their uh, knowledge of what's really important, which is orbital mechanics or you know what what is really Im- how to do these bigger problems. Uh, on the other hand, why are we pushing our kids really far, really fast? And so at least that's the way I kind of feel. I, I feel our, you know, my, my poor two-year-old has already been in full-time school for a year. And, um, uh, you know, and, and while she's uh, coming out of it, you know, super smart, uh, you know, I, uh, I, I hope we, uh, uh, you know, are still letting her uh, be ch- a, a child enough. Yeah. But, they, but they definitely have yep. uh, opportunities that we never had. Off into the potosphere with TGP nominal. Recently, there was the uh, the argument between um, Charlie Bolden and um, Senator Cruz about the core objectives of NASA. Do you still feel that the Earth sciences are still important? Absolutely. I think the most inspirational stuff that NASA does is exploration, and the fundamental parts of you know helping humanity understand the the big philosophical questions of, you know, who are we and what is our place in the universe? I mean, exploration kind of helps you place that. However, when you want to sit down and go, what practical value is actually NASA doing for the human species? It's the environmental stuff that is nails it every time. You know, even just little things like uh, uh, watching uh, the sun, which my father, you know, my father took the first solar telescope into space on Skylab. And, you know, since then, we now understand space weather in a way that we never did before. And we now understand that even prior to understanding space weather, the weather of the sun was bringing down electrical grids around the globe. Mm-hmm. And we just didn't realize that that was what was causing these massive outages was solar, you know, solar uh, coronal mass ejections. And, um, uh, and now that we know that, we can watch the sun, predict it, and defend against it, you know, shut, shut down circuits here and there to protect them from each other when those uh, massive amounts of energy get dumped onto the Earth. Plus, you know, weather and sea rise and, you know, temperature and salinity and, you know, all, and, and just, you know, predicting the prediction of hurricanes and all the tracking of all these, all this, all this work that NASA does that is invaluable, uh, I think is, is absolutely uh, essential. And I think the the naysayers, like uh, Ted Cruz in this case, uh, you know, tend to be climate deniers um, who are really trying to uh, reduce the amount of data that's available to uh, uh, dis- dispel their, uh, uh, in my mind, their their lack of scientific knowledge. Mm-hmm. This is 
pretty unrelated to what we just said there, but it goes back to your time on the ISS. Now, I have been asked this question. Um, we were asked it last year for our trip to the National Space Centre for um, for Yuri's Night. And the question was, what does the ISS actually smell like? You know, it's interesting. I had been asked that too. I, I read, it had been noted to me that some people thought it had a smell prior to me launching. And so I went there prepared to notice that moment, you know, to try to pay attention during that transition. To be honest, in my case, I didn't smell anything unusual <laughs> as I crossed that border. Um, you know, there's reason to believe that it should have an odor because it's a completely closed can of air that, you know, a lot of sweaty, stinky people are <laughs> moving around in. And there is no shower, and the bathroom facilities are terrible. <laughs> and uh, uh, and even, even the place people wash themselves, which is you do with just a, um, uh, a moist towel, mm -hmm. and you, you brush your teeth by, with a bottle of water to swizzle stuff around in your mouth, and then you spit it out into the leftover moist towel and a little plastic bag of trash, which also tends to put sputum around in the room and on the walls. <laughs> And, and then mold grows oh, in the right. places where people have cleaned themselves is the walls are a bit moldy. <laughs> and so there's lots of good reasons to think that this place would not smell the best or at least off in some odd way. But that air is filtered, you know, multiple times a day through very incredible levels of scrubbing. Um, you know, pure oxygen is put back in every day that is split out of the uh, water. Uh, all the not only is the CO2 of course scrub, but with it basically any other chemical that's in the air. I found the air, I found the air quality on board to be perfect, and I found no odors, uh, offensive or otherwise, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, presence uh, on the space station. Though some have some have expressed d differently than I have. Because um, it takes me back to uh, you talking about the facilities on board um, and the talks that you've given in the past about the. Uh, Shall we just say that the toothpaste scenario? Exactly. Um, and the toothpaste, yeah, the toothpaste scenario, the toothpaste analogy for uh, uh, solid waste disposal in the bathroom, uh, I think is a very good one. It's, I think it's quite, quite accurate. That uh, uh, you know, but I'd be happy to retell, or or, or we can let your audience no, no, look that's it up. that's just fine if you if you want to go over it again because it. The first time I heard it, I was I was almost in hysterics. The first time I. I have oh, well, this. <laughs> uh, well I don't go. know that I've heard the story, so I need to hear this. <laughs> All right. So if you think of the, the toilets on the space station, you know, millions of dollars has been spent on the development of space toilets down through the years. And yet no toilet so far had, does anyway think is any better than one of these oldest uh, Russian invented toilets, which is what they use on the space station. And even the more recent U.S. toilet is really they purchased that toilet from the Russians and, and made some enhancements to uh, its recycling capability. But the fundamental operation of the toilet is has been unchanged now for some years and uh you know if you're going to use the bathroom there's really two types of you know reasons you would go in there's liquid waste and solid waste and and i'll skip past the technical aspects of turning <laughs> on and off the toilet which is complicated you know you can't just walk in open the lid use it flush it and close the lid in this case you've got to turn on a whole sequence of power and you have to spin up some pumps and you have to prime those pumps with some special fluids and Anyway, there's a, there's a whole checklist of on and a whole checklist of off. But fundamentally, uh, you know, liquid waste are actually pretty easy. You know, liquid waste, there's basically a vacuum cleaner hose that comes out of the wall. And 
You can put a circular funnel on it if you're a man or a little lozenge-shaped funnel on it if you're a woman, and you just urinate into the funnel. And since it's a vacuum hose, you know, that, that those liquids are taken behind and they centrifuge the, the liquid and the gases to separate them, and then they, you know, store or recycle things as needed. So that works fine. It's the solid waste that's a problem. And the solid waste process looks something like this. First of all, the toilet itself is basically a beer keg, you know, an aluminum empty beer keg bolted to the floor. And on top of that is a shoebox sized toilet seat. And, and the vacuum hose, like you would, similar to the one you would urinate into, is connected to the bottom of that beer keg. And when you lift the lid on the toilet seat, you see a Coke can sized hole with a plastic insert in it that is held onto the top of the hole by a rubber band. And since there's vacuum, since there's airflow going in through that plastic bag that has perforations in the bottom, the theory is that any solids you release above this plastic bag or above the seat will be drawn into that plastic bag, stored in the plastic bag, and when you're done releasing solids above it, you can, the, when you pull off the rubber band that's at the top, when you pull it off the ring at the top, it seals that bag closed automatically, and that bag falls into the beer keg you know, equivalent, and uh, you put in a new plastic bag for the next user and close the lid and you're done. That's the theory. The problem is as follows. And here's where we get into the toothpaste <laughs> analogy. If, imagine here on Earth in one gravity, if you hold a toothpaste tube horizontally and squeeze it, toothpaste will start to come out of the toothpaste tube. It will curl down towards the sink due to gravity. And when enough of it is hanging out, gravity will pull it off of the toothpaste tube and it will plop into the sink. But if you do that same experiment in space with a toothpaste tube, you'll squeeze it and some will come out of the tube. Just stay there. You'll squeeze it some more, more will come out of the tube and it will just stay there. Squeeze some more, more will come out of the tube and now you have a long string of it coming out of the tube, but it'll just stay there. And if you try to move the toothpaste tube, you're gonna drag that toothpaste that's hanging off of it with you. <laughs> And that's the problem that if you sit now, now imagine using that metaphor to, for your own body sitting above the toilet seat. Well, oh, and there's one more very important point to put in, which is on Earth, when you walk around all day, your body movement in gravity helps your intestines function. And so that keeps material moving through your intestines. So in space, since you're not walking in gravity, you don't go to the bathroom very often in space, but when you do, it's because your intestines are truly full. So when you need to go, you really need to go a lot. And so here, after a week of being in space, you go to use the toilet for the first time, you position yourself over the seat, you begin your process, and in less than half a second, you've created a column between yourself, the backside of yourself, and the bottom of the plastic bag. And so you can't just continue because you'll just make a mess on yourself, nor can you stand up because you'll drag this into the room with you, in the bathroom with you. <laughs> and so you're kind of stuck there going like, wait a minute, how do I, how, how, what do I do? And no one has trained you for this. There's no one has even told you this story. <laughs> and so everyone sort of learns the same thing, which is you kind of bounce on the seat a little bit. And that inertia tends to shake things off of you into the bag. But now you've really just started, and if you just start again, the bag is now obstructed. And so, and you can't really waste a million bags kind of throwing them away after each small use. And so everyone learns the next horrific maneuver, 
um, which is you get out rubber gloves and wet wipes and you kind of maneuver things in that little plastic bag <laughs> off to the side <laughs> while you then repeatedly repeat this procedure of adding more to the bag over and over again until after maybe 20 minutes, you're finally through with using the bathroom and you clean yourself up and you clean up all that and you drop the bag in and you drop it in the can and you put a new bag in and you seal the thing up and you escape from the bathroom and all of the more experienced adults are pointing at you going, ha, 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 figure out. <laughs> uh, my uh, favorite part of that was one of the talks you gave, I think it was one of the space ups um, you gave the talk to. And you mentioned that you you got um, asked to go on a, a TV show here in the UK uh, called Blue Peter, right. uh, which I've mentioned to John before. It's, it's been featured in one of our other episodes. They ran a competition recently for Tim Peake's mission patch for for when he goes up in November. Um, they got the kids to uh, design a patch for him um, and so forth. Um, but yeah, you were saying about, they asked you just a similar question um, and they had a, a toilet that you they brought onto the set for you to, to explain how it worked and it wasn't the same one you used. <laughs> That's exactly right. You know, in fact, uh, uh, the one they had was a prototype for Mir 2, which was never flown. And so even though it was you know 99% the same, the one big difference was the size of the opening and the depth of that plastic bag was at least twice as much. So when I saw it, I was looking at that going like, oh, I would have loved to have had that toilet in space <laughs> because it would have solved a lot of these problems. And yet I was in the middle of a live Blue Peter broadcast. And so I really couldn't stop right there in real time and explain my overjoyedness at seeing this toilet alternative. And so I had to just give it to them cold as if it was the, exactly the same one that I'd used on orbit. But as soon as the cameras were, were off, I was like, wow, I need to study this toilet. And we immediately went into telling them about uh, uh, why I thought that that's the toilet that really needs to be in space is this uh, mere two toilet that to my knowledge has never flown. <laughs> So, so how long did it take you to get used to moving around in the ISS? Well, I have done a lot of uh, zero-G flights. And so um, I had felt like I was an expert at flying in zero <laughs> gravity. However, uh, that turns out not to be true. When you are in persistent, long-term, perfect zero gravity like you are you know, in uh, on the ISS, you quickly realize that to move around, you, you hardly use your littlest finger of energy to move through. You know, you, you reach an arm out and you push with just a finger or two on one side wall and you kind of push a little bit more with, from the other side wall and you, and you try to keep your, your, the, the vector of the inertia of your body going exactly down the center of the cabin. Well, when you're a beginner, you, you still use too much energy. You tend to push off one wall too hard which means you end up in the, the next sidewall too soon and harder than you expect, which means you have to resist that impact by pushing hard, and that pushes you away from that wall harder than you expect to be on the next wall harder than you expect. And, um, and what's interesting about that is that, you know, all four walls are covered with stuff. You know, there's no, since there's no furniture, there's no, uh, there's no need to consider, you know, there's no need to leave any surface clean. You, they all have the fuzzy part of... Uh, hook and loop Velcro type connections. And so anything that anybody wants to store somewhere, you know, any tool that you want to leave behind, you just put a sticky dot of Velcro on it and stick it <laughs> to the wall and it basically stays there. But there's so much junk up there now that people have gone like, well, you know, I have I have another thing that I want to stick on the wall. 
oh, but I didn't bring any more Velcro with me. So where am I gonna get it? You go and you go, you take the sticky dot off of something else that's already up there, you cut it in half, and you put two half dots on things, <laughs> and then quarter dots, and then eighth dots, and then you realize that all you need to do to keep something stuck to the wall is one hook of hook and loop, and it will stay there, because there's no force trying to take it off, except people who are not experienced flyers come riding through the interior of the space station and bump against those walls. And so you can always tell the beginners, like I was, when after they get to the end of a module, you turn around and you see all this debris that has been uh, following you down the uh, hallway with you. Excellent. Now, you've been known to collect quite a few artifacts uh, in your time. I know, I know your your home is, is kind of a museum as, as well as, as your home. Now, you've got a few um, space artifacts, haven't you? What, what kind of things have you got? Oh, we've got a lot. So, uh, of <laughs> course, uh, you know, I have things from my own flight, as you would imagine. Uh, you know, some of my the manuals that I used, uh, my space suit, uh, the seat liner that is, you know, was cast to my body shape. Yeah. Uh, uh, I've purchased other th- similar, you know, parts of Soyuz vehicles, that sort of thing. Uh, you know, models of basically every spaceship that's ever been built. Uh, you know, the, the the standard things that any collector would would likely find interesting. But I but I've then gone beyond that. Uh, probably the most exotic uh, item that I have collected uh, is a I own Lunacod Two, <laughs> which is a Soviet era lunar rover that is still on the moon. And owning that rover on the moon makes me the world's only private owner of an object on a foreign celestial body. <laughs> and the relevance of that, other than the fun of saying that phrase, is that you know while there are international treaties that say no government shall lay claim to property off of planet Earth, that was specifically not written to include private or corporate ownership. And since I'm the only private owner of something on the moon, and my rover also tilled the soil by turning its wheels over 40 kilometers and surveyed you know, to its uh, port and starboard side over that 40 kilometers and did a variety of experiments and is still in use because it has mirrors on board that are still used by ground stations to shoot lasers at to get very accurate moon distances. So my property is still in active utilization. I believe I can claim not just my rover, but a 40-kilometer long track on the surface <laughs> of the moon. And so, so while I think no, virtually no one else has true property ownership claim rights on the moon, I think I do. <laughs> so do you have any uh, plans to, to rent that um, bit of land that you <laughs> well, well, funny you should ask, because, of course, I say that you know somewhat tongue-in-cheek, and I'm obviously not uh, – there's no little practicality to that claim, <laughs> although I do think it is a legitimate claim fundamentally. But we're also going to reinforce that here with the Google Lunar X Prize. So the Google Lunar X Prize is going to send private vehicles to the moon. So they will be the next group of people that can make private claims of wherever they go on the moon mm-hmm. and put it into utilization. But one of the bonus prizes on the X Prize is to go to a pre-existing landing spot on the moon. And NASA has already told the, the competitors for the X Prize, please don't come to a U.S.-owned location. We don't want you to mess it up. And Russia has said, please don't come to one of our locations because we don't want you to mess it up. Well, that only leaves mine. So you know, it's, the only, it's the only artifact hardware on the moon that is in private ownership. So we've already told folks at the X Prize, I'd be thrilled if you came onto my property 
And, uh, and by the way, if you come onto my property, on the one hand, I would happily pay you for some photographs or data of my property. On the other hand, of course, I have to charge you to be trespassing on my property. <laughs> and we'll call it even. But that way, by having an economic exchange, even if it's an even exchange, it means we've now both solidified our property claims through economic exchange. Wow. Now, I, I can't remember where I saw it now, but I, I, I remember you talking. It may have been to your dad, actually, um, where he, he was saying uh, of a, a certain space artifact that he wouldn't mind seeing. And you said, I've got one of those. Yeah. I, I can't remember what it was now. But, um, yeah, it was, it was like, well, yeah, I just happen to have one. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, and, well, of course, uh, you know, in our collection, I have, we have two original Sputniks. Um, wow. On the 40th anniversary of Sputnik, the Russian team uh, at Energia uh, built four what they described as Sputnik twos. They were smaller basketball size replicas of Sputnik. Two of them were taken up by cosmonauts and, and hand launched off the mirror while they operated for a month or two for ham radio operators to ping or listen to. Mm -hmm. uh, and the other two remained on Earth. And uh, uh, because my father took the first ham radio into space, my father amongst ham radio operators is fairly you know, famous, shall we say. And so the gentleman at Energia that built these now two remaining Sputnik 2s, who happened to be a friend and fan of my father's, he kept one of them and he gave me the other. And so upstairs here in our house, I also have an operational satellite. And so uh, you can literally turn it on and illegally broadcast, you know, all over the, you know, the <laughs> state of New York, state, state of New York uh, and uh, and listen to uh, the original transmissions of Sputnik. Because your house, your Britannia Manor, well, didn't that feature an MTV Cribs once? It did, yeah. My <laughs> first home that I built uh, 35 years ago, I started naming my home as Britannia Manor. That was Mark 1. The one that was in, in MTV Cribs was uh, Britannia Manor Mark 2. Uh, I'm now uh, on to three and four. Britannia Manor four is here in New York, and I have a Britannia Manor three uh, that I started constructing before the one here in New York. So it's Britannia Manor three, but it's still not finished. So three's not finished, uh, but four is finished here in New York. <laughs> so you are Lord British in more than just the virtual world, huh? Uh, but of course, yeah. In fact, uh, I have more Lord British costumes than mundane street clothes. So uh, uh, yeah. Before I go, Richard, on the show, we like to make special guests honorary crew members. So without further ado, I'd, I'd like to present you with our own TGP nominal patch. I don't know if you can see it there. I can. That's fantastic. I, uh, first of all, thank you very kindly. I am deeply touched. I am excited to join your crew and uh, yeah, look forward to flying again together oh. uh, anytime uh, the opportunity prevails. That would be absolutely oh, awesome. Fantastic. Yeah, it's a, it's been an honor to have you on board, and, and jo John and I would just uh, like to thank you for taking part in our uh, Yuri's Night special. Wonderful. I'll, I'll be back anytime you need an extra crew uh, member. Uh, give me a call. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. That was Richard Garriott. Now, I know how excited you were, John, when we did that, that interview. That was awesome! <laughs> and I, I just can't believe the amount of time he actually allowed us as well because normally when we get someone with his calibre it's like right you, you've you got this amount of time and you've got to yeah, stick but to it. it's just his whole attitude was like oh yeah you know we're just we're all just one of the guys just sitting around chatting away yeah it was quite literally that and it was 
probably one of the most relaxed interviews I've ever done. Um, and it was just amazing. He, he's a really nice guy. So down to earth. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll be honest. I really had no clue what I was going to ask for him because just, you know, being such a fan of Ultima for decades, I was kind of starstruck. And he was just like, he just kind of pulled the questions out of you and was just happy to talk about anything. That, that was just, that was awesome. Yeah. I've got a, um, a video clip that I'm going to put in the show notes of h- him showing you around the house that he's actually in at the moment, uh, the new one in New York. And it is pretty amazing place. It's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I really enjoyed talking to Richard and yes. um, f- finding out about his childhood as well when, you know, I, I've always wanted to find out what it was like for someone who who was in that community and growing up and, and it's just the way he was saying oh yeah you on the doorstep you had neil armstrong and, and puzzle dream. <laughs> like really <laughs> <laughs> and the, the story we was talking about the the night vision goggles and they, they just used it for hunting down the cat in the backyard uh <laughs> it's brilliant well, just, oh hey firemen really do exist <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> so many stories he's got to tell and um, not only just space stories that the other adventures he's done because he's been to the antarctic he's he's been down the the amazon and lots of other places he's been to as well so and what was so cool about that is that he offered to come back as another as a as a crew member which uh, was brilliant uh, well, and the fact that we didn't even have to ask him he just volunteered yeah normally i'd sort of say would you mind coming back and it's no, I, I want to be involved, and I think that's what makes him such a likable guy. You know, he's passionate about everything he does. I think it shows mm-hmm. with his career. Ah, yeah, it's going to take me a while to recover from this. <laughs> Spanhead Productions are a small independent sound recording company based in rural Hertfordshire. We specialise in creating content for all your podcasting needs, whether it be field recordings, fox pops, or capturing the atmosphere during social events. Editing is a very time-consuming job, so Spanhead Productions are on hand to take away some of the burden for you. Just advise us on how you'd like your content to sound, and we will do the rest. We can even help you design and manage a website for your podcast, too. Visit us now, spanheadproductions.weebly.com. That's spanheadproductions.weebly.com. So now we've come to the end of our Yuri's Night journey for 2015. Did you enjoy it, John? Absolutely. Now I've got to think about what I'm going to do for 2016. Um, <laughs> <laughs> You've got a whole year to think about it. Yeah, and I, I think I'm going to put some feelers out a bit earlier this year again. I did, I did last year, um, and it paid off, <laughs> I think. We've had an amazing podcast this year, talking to people that have been involved with Yuri's Night from all the different stages of it right up to the current time um and i think through what we've actually managed to get hold of this year i'm hoping people will understand what yuri's night is all about now before i go i'd like to thank all our guests loretta whitesides ryan kobrick and richard garriott i'd also like to thank steve dix from uh, liquid management for giving us permission to use the public service broadcasting's gagarin the nasa edge crew kate arkless gray 
everyone at yurisnight.net, and of course, Mr. Berger. Thank you for having me along for the ride, sir. It's been a pleasure, as, as always. So, if you're going to a Yuri's Night event, have fun, and don't forget to raise a glass to a great man. Piacoli. Well, that about wraps it up for this episode of TGP Nominal. Be sure to visit www.tgpnominal.weebly.com for the show notes for this or any other episode of TGP Nominal. Just look for the relevant tab in the menu. Let us know what you think of the show. Send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com. Because your input is our output. Or you can use the social media icons at the top of the website, which include Twitter and Facebook. If you would like to subscribe to any of our podcasts, you can do so via iTunes, the RSS feed, TuneIn and Stitcher On Demand Radio. Don't forget to review us and give us a five-star rating. You can also listen to rebroadcasts of all our shows on the Awake Radio Group. You can find a link on our podcast pages. If you like what we're doing here, then why not buy us a pint by clicking on the Donate button on any of the podcast pages and don't forget to spread the word about us. Thanks for listening and I'll speak to you all again soon. Just got it. Station, this is Houston ACR. Thank you. That concludes the event.